This yes. is hell. I see. Live from our studio above a pool table in a bar, this is hell and in, on this week's show. The forever war the U.S. has been waging nearly this entire century is about to be put on autopilot as private corporations are secretly automating war by weaponizing artificial intelligence without any oversight. And if that didn't scare the hell out of you, then nothing will. Following our first guest, we'll hear how the white left has misunderstood black political life for way too long, ignoring the diversity of opinions and beliefs held by African Americans. And to be honest, our second guest this week is sick and tired of it. And who can blame him? On this special edition of This Is Hell, it's the wars the media is actively and aggressively ignoring, the drone wars, and the class war. But this is not the media. This is Hell, bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996. This is Hell, streaming live right now exclusively for the people who are helping us build our still incomplete studio, which we are broadcasting, streaming from right now, recording a live edition of This Is Hell right now. Our subscribers of This Is Hell on Patreon and patreon.com slash this is hell are the people who built this studio, and we are recording this live to be aired Saturday morning on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, where we'll be streaming at thisishell.com and podcast in its entirety shortly after our live broadcast, also at thisishell.com. You can also now hear This Is Hell on Southside's Lumpen Radio and on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho. And if you want your neighbors to hear This Is Hell, email us your favorite local radio station's call letters to chuck at thisishell.com or send them to us via Facebook or Twitter. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio and follow us on Twitter at thisishellradio and on Instagram at thisishell during this week's hell. The U.S. is at war in eight countries right now at the moment, at this moment. Who knows? It might be nine by the time I'm finishing the sentence. And the U.S. military and CIA is engaged in countless secret engagements taking place all over our planet that we don't know anything about because our government and our media is keeping us purposely uninformed. That's what makes them, these wars, countless. We literally cannot count them because the government is keeping them secret from the citizenry, which is weird when you think the U.S. is supposedly a democracy. Not only does the current forever war go uncovered in the media and lack debate in government, but as it becomes increasingly privatized by corporations making more and more autonomous weapons that utilize artificial intelligence, it will become more and more of a secret war. Worse yet, it leads to a completely experimental and unaccountable weapon system that might be creating significant animosity among those non-state terror groups who those weapons are supposed to defend the U.S. against in the first place. We'll find out how easy it is to fight wars and how little the people of the United States apparently know or care when we speak with military and national security policy analyst Emily Manna and Allegra, Allegra Hartpoolian, who works with leading experts and organizations at the intersection of national security, politics, and the media. Emily and Allegra posted the Tom Dispatch article, The End of War is just a beginning. Will technology stamp a forever on America's wars? Emily is a policy analyst at Open the Government, where she focuses on transparency and accountability for U.S. military and national security programs. 
Emma recently co-authored a new report, Government Incorporated, Amazon, Government Security and Secrecy. You can find out more about Open the Government at openthegovernment.org. Allegra is a media associate at Rethink Media, where she principally focuses on U.S. drone policies and related use of force issues. Find Rethink Media online at rethinkmedia.org. Allegra is also a political partner with the Truman National Security Project, which you can find out more about at trumanproject.org. I think that stars Jim Carrey. Following our discussion on the United States Forever War, the white left gets black political life all wrong, understanding it as monolithic and lacking a willingness to engage in any meaningful class analysis, which erases any class differences among African Americans. By doing so, our second guest argues activists miss realizing that mass incarceration is a class project, not a race project, and that African Americans have actually contributed to building that carceral state. This misreading of black political life even leads to an underestimation of the importance and popularity of universal social programs today and historically, like the New Deal. We'll find out how and why the white left gets black political life all wrong and what it means for activism today when we speak with African American studies and political science scholar Cedric Johnson, who wrote the article, What Black Life Actually Looks Like for Too Long. The left has organized based on caricatures of black political life. If it wants to win, it needs to start recognizing the role of class in black America. Cedric's writing appeared in Jacobin, but was originally published at New Politics. You can find New Politics at newpol.org. Cedric is Associate Professor of African American Studies and Political Science at the University of Illinois at Chicago. My alma mater, so you know. It's, it's easy to get in. We'll follow all that with a moment of truth from Jeff Dorch. And this week, Jeff looks in the big box of whiteness. That's what's happening during the first two hours of This Is Hell this week, which we are streaming live right now exclusively for our subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. Then during the third and fourth hours of this week's hell, we'll be interviewing Black Agenda Report's Danny Haifong about his book, American Exceptionalism and American Innocence, A People's History of Fake News from the Revolutionary War to the War on Terror. And we'll also talk to Joshua Specht about his book, Red Meat Republic, a hoof-to-table history of how beef changed America. Patreon subscribers can hear that live tomorrow, but if you are listening right now on WNUR on Saturday morning, we'll be playing those conversations later on this week's show. I know it's all kind of confusing, but all that's happening is we are streaming live for our Patreon subscribers, recording live for WNUR, and then replaying the whole damn thing on Chicago Sound Experiment Saturday morning. Pretty simple, really. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new by you? Uh, I like how you've gone from a sound coffin to a sound bunker. Yeah, it's. Uh, I had to get them off the floor because I did So when you want acoustic panels to be hung on walls, is it a very good idea to store those acoustic panels against the walls that you want them to be hung. I didn't realize that the carpenters would need them away from where we actually wanted them. Uh, so for people besides me and Chuck who are in here, uh, Chuck has built a series of, he's built himself a small little bunker out of soundproofing panels that he ducks his head into to avoid uh, echoing. It's actually pretty great. 
yeah, out here it sounds really terrible. But in here it sounds Ooh, pretty good. D- dang, yeah, we should just uh, do the show from in there all the time. <laughs> I'm going to get in there with you. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Alex has this week's hangover cure, and you are going to need it this week, I promise you. Alex, what's this week's hangover cure? This week's hangover cure is chicken fillet roll. According to another hangover cure from the article at IrelandBeforeYouDie.com headlined, Ranked, Ireland's 10 Favorite Hangover Foods. Hangover Feuds, probably a different issue. (laughs) Chicken fillet rolls are one of the most popular foods in Ireland on a Sunday morning, but if you think it's a slightly healthier choice uh, than some of the other hangover cures, you would be wrong, I'm afraid. The average chicken fillet roll has more than the recommended daily dose of salt and around (laughs) 1,000 calories. Mind you, that's probably exactly what you need after a session, which is why it is so popular in Ireland and why, and with the deliciously crusty baguette holding crispy chicken smothered in mayonnaise so readily available. Damn, sounds good. It is too tempting not to give it a go. Even throw some even throw it in a bag of tato, t- potatoes coming back from last week. <laughs> some even throw in a bag of tato in the sandwich for added flavor. That makes this week's hangover cure chicken fillet roll and its thousand calories of greatness. I love how you say fillet instead of fillet. I just love that. It sounds great. It's very British of you. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. And I'm pretty sure Allah's too. Prove us wrong. This is hell. If it wasn't for you supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell, we would be giving you a lot less hell this year. In fact, we'd be giving you at least 24 fewer hours than we will be giving you over the next five months. That's six whole shows because I have several weekend commitments that I cannot miss. Sure, I could skip all that stuff in the past, but it turns out that can be devastating to your family and your social life, leading to a staggering amount of loneliness and depression that isn't helped by the hellish content of our show and its horrible business model of putting people before profits. So I've missed a lot of weddings. I've missed a lot of baptisms. I've missed a lot of newborn babies. I've missed a lot of things that have happened in my family over the last 23 years. And as everybody's getting older, those times together are becoming more important. So to everyone who has already joined us on Patreon.com slash This Is Hell, where we do a separate show every week with a new monologue by me and a classic interview from our 23 years of archives that is unavailable anywhere else, thank you for making this week's show possible. Why Why are the classic interviews that we choose during our regular Patreon podcast unavailable anywhere else? Because we cannot afford a programmer yet who can make all those past interviews and shows available online for everyone. That's one of the many reasons we need your support on Patreon. And we need more listeners to become subscribers as well. We want to show our appreciation to all our listeners for all their support by giving everyone free and easy access to all the content we have ever created here on This Is Hell since going on air for the very first time during the Democratic National Convention here in Chicago in July of 1996. Yes, some really old shows have been lost to the dustbin of history, but we have nearly everything and we want everyone to be able to listen to any of it, whenever they want. We want all the interviews to be organized and cataloged so listeners can search by guest or topic and spend hours going down the many rabbit holes we've dug here on This Is Hell, the rabbit holes that scare the hell out of the rest of the media. 
But we're not doing this only to be able to afford a programmer to get our entire catalog of shows online. We still haven't finished this studio, obviously. I'm in this bunker of acoustic panels right now. The studio from which I'm talking to you right now, because we still don't have all the proper equipment we need to do a proper show from this space. What you are hearing right now is being held together with horsehair and bale wire, rubber bands and paper clips. Hell, paper clips. Hell, we haven't got the acoustic panels up yet that we finally ordered and have arrived because it's hard to book the only carpenter we can actually afford. Apparently, cost-effective carpenters are in very high demand. So I'm doing the show from what is essentially a child's fort, but as Alex was saying, more like a bunker of acoustic panels. We don't even have the capability to do interviews over dedicated phone lines, gambling on our still chancy network and Skype to handle the interviews. And at times, Skype can have a nearly intolerable audio connections. We may be forced into getting this one piece of equipment that will finally fix all of our phone interview audio problems. But that one costs $3,000. But the biggest complaint we've ever had on the show over all these years has been the audio quality of guests on the phone. Now, we are not allowed to do anything to fix or maintain WNUR's equipment. They have a process because they're a very large institution that you have to fill out paperwork, have to put in a work order, and hopefully the work actually gets addressed. But that's another reason we're building our own studio, to finally have clear phone calls so we can actually hear and understand all our guests and to be able to maintain our own studio so we can make that the case. And we're running on a sound mixing board for recording mixing, recording music, sorry. We don't even have a digital broadcast board, which you really need to do a show like this. And if there is anyone out there who has mixed music before, you know you don't need a mixing board for broadcasting. You need a broadcasting board. If anybody's got one that they want to get rid of, please contact us. Hell, I still need a computer in the studio, so finally I can have access to a computer and be online during the show. That's right, I cannot be online during the show at WNUR, but I will be able to go online at our own new studio during the show. All thanks to your continuing support of This Is Hell on Patreon. And I'll actually be able to communicate live with listeners online during the show. Something we've never been able to do do because I can't go online at WNUR Studios. We are trying to create a sustainable This Is Hell without having to resort to more commercial endeavors like running ads during podcasts or at our site or selling the naming rights to our new studio to a corporation. And yes... We've had people who actually asked to do all three of those things. Run ads on the podcast, another one to run ads at the site, and then another one had actually asked to put their corporation's name above our studio door. Yes, we definitely need more subscribers on Patreon to keep this whole Megillah going, and we need your help in getting more people to sign up at patreon.com slash thisishell. We can't do any of this. And we wouldn't be able to do any of this without you. So thank you. That's why the entire month of July will be This Is Hell Listener Appreciation Month. All month we will be featuring guests who have been supported by you, or have been suggested by you. If we have your guest suggestion on air, we'll send you a surprise gift in appreciation for your suggestion. That surprise gift will be a surprise to us as well, because I haven't determined what that gift will be yet. 
Then we hope to be broadcasting our very first live four-hour show from this new studio completed on the last Saturday in July, that's July 27th, immediately following that show, again, on Saturday, July 27th, we'll be celebrating with you during our annual all-day This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party and art show featuring art and music created and performed by our listeners. And we're doing it all to thank you for supporting us in building our studios as well as our online archives, but most importantly, just for listening. So thanks for all you do, because if it wasn't for you, this wouldn't be This is Hell. The endless wars ignited by the war on terror. The endless wars ignited by the war on terror have actually become more deadly of late. Not that you would know that from watching or reading the corporate mainstream U.S. news. And these wars are going to be easier to launch and easier for the U.S. public to ignore as they become increasingly automated. Here to guide us through the hell of the forever war, military and national security policy analyst Emily Manna and Allegra Harputlian. I knew I was going to get that wrong, even though I grew up with tons of people who have names exactly like that, who works with leading experts in organizations at the intersection of national security, politics, and the media, who both posted the dispatch article, The End of War is Just a Beginning. Will Technology Stamp a Forever on America's Wars? First, hello to you, Emily. Hi, Chuck. Thanks for having us. Great to have you. Your voice sounds great on the airs. And also, uh, hello to you, Allegra. Thanks for having me, Chuck. And you actually did say my last name right. So. Okay. Uh, by the <laughs> way, are you Armenian? I am Armenian. How do you know that I grew up in Detroit? That's how you know, because... <laughs> I was going to say when you said the IAN. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. So let's start with you, Emily. Um, you write, uh, both of you write, here's a question worth asking about America's seem- seemingly endless global conflicts. If you kill somebody and there's no one there, on our side anyway, is the United States still at war? So, Emily, what happens when a nation is at war but the citizens back home feel absolutely no impact from those wars whatsoever? That nobody they know is involved in the war, that the media doesn't report the daily news of those wars, elected leaders aren't debating those wars. What happens when a citizenry is so disconnected from the wars their government is waging around the world? Well, I mean, the short-term answer to that question (laughs) is that there's no accountability, uh, which is uh, kind of cyclically extends the wars even further. Uh, Politicians, uh, especially in Congress, know that the public is not going to the polls to vote on these issues. So no one in Congress really wants to stick their neck out uh, and call for an end to these wars. In the long term, of course, they people are affected. Uh, they just don't necessarily know how. They don't necessarily know how it connects to them, how it impacts them, even though U.S. taxpayers have, you know, each individually spent more than $23,000 on these wars since they started in 2001, not to mention the myriad impacts on on not just the economy, but uh, civil liberties at home in the U.S. and and, and all kinds of things. So, you know, of course, it is impacting them. Folks just don't quite know how. Allegra, you and Emily write that Quote, that may prove to be the truly salient question when it comes to the future of America's war on terror, which is now almost 18 years old and encompasses significant parts of the greater Middle East and North Africa. Think of it, if you want, as the artificial intelligence or AI question. Allegra, to what extent does the United States military 
in the War on Terror resemble the mechanization of war that was depicted in Terminator overseas? Does the U.S. present itself as a robot army? So I would say that um, Emily is definitely the tech expert in these in this one. But I mean, I believe that the killer robot uh, depiction of the Terminator is actually really dangerous because we miss all of those intermediary technologies that are actually getting us to the point of killer robot, but that are actually probably more dangerous and a little bit more insidious. Uh, so one of the biggest examples is uh, Project Maven which Google uh, was supposed to create before employee outrage actually made them revoke that contract. Uh, but it's supposed to make targeting more precise. So it's going to use autonomous technology to point out uh, things quicker than the human mind could pick. So that's a tree, that's a fence, that's a wall. But we don't know actually whether that makes it more precise or actually how to even account for whether that makes it more precise or what happens when it goes wrong. So those other, so that little technology that we can't see actually has potentially deadly consequences, especially to the civilians that we're killing. But it might not look like something out of the Terminator. It'll look more like an algorithm on the screen. Well, let me just stick with that popular culture theme just for a second, even though it's kind of nauseating me. Emily, you write in popular culture, uh, conversations about the dangers of advanced military technology tend to revolve around killer robots and other dystopian scenarios straight out of movies like the Terminator series, iRobot, and more recently, Netflix Black Mirror. Why don't those dystopian movies with killer robots dissuade the media consuming public from supporting autonomous weapons programs? I would think that that kind of media consumption would have made it so nobody would have ever wanted to allow any kind of autonomy to be given to any weapon system. So what explains why there isn't such, why isn't there more popular outrage because of what has been presented about AI and weaponization of artificial intelligence in popular culture? Well, I think it's a few things. I mean, number one, the the public, despite having massively lost faith in uh, U.S. government and democratic institutions in general, still maintains uh, a massive amount of trust in the military, um, which is, you know, troubling by itself. Um, but I think the public still does maintain a lot of that, a lot of that trust and faith in the military. Um, and on top of that, you know, there's kind of this culture of fear where uh, pu the public is hearing about an AI arms race occurring around the world where Russia and China and, and a bunch of smaller countries are all rushing to develop and operationalize uh, these new technologies. And so, you know, the, the American public kind of naturally wants the U.S. to be at the forefront and have these cutting edge technologies uh, and stay ahead of the curve. Um, the problem, as, as Ali was mentioning, is that uh, we really just don't understand this tech yet. Uh, we don't, un even, even AI engineers and programmers and the real experts developing this tech can't explain kind of what happens in the black box, what, what happens to make the computer or the algorithm uh, 
spit out the output that it does. So it just leads to this really kind of troubling situation where we're we're rushing to uh, put these new technologies into effect so that we we stay on the cutting edge uh, militarily. But at the end of the day, there aren't any safeguards in place, and there's really very little understanding of what they're doing. Well, Emily, Emily, yeah. let me just uh, let me follow up with you, and I'll, I'll leg around that just really quickly. So, um, oh. I, what I don't understand is if this is the case, if that is indeed what is happening, that we are creating the, this technology that is chancy, that is sketchy, who is going to be held responsible if any of this autonomous weaponry makes a mistake and kills the wrong person? That's the age-old question, isn't it? Uh, what came before the chicken or the egg? Because Google says that they wouldn't be responsible. Uh, the military says they wouldn't be responsible or we wouldn't know. Um, and so we actually get this kind of loop of if everyone says they didn't do it, how do you prove it? Especially when these uh, this technology can you know be faulty from anything from algorithms to human error also still. Um, I also think going back to your point on the pop culture and why we're still so obsessed with the killer robots and why no one is scared of them. I think we saw this appetite, especially for war in pop culture really start obviously during the cold war and that fear makes people it, it dramatizes it and so people still find killer robots cool they find drones cool they don't think about the killing part of it a lot of the time and so we see that reflected in kind of the one-sided uh depiction that we see in things like the terminator and black mirror well, Emily, what makes them cool? I mean, you guys talk about, uh, what's his name, Palmer, Lucky Palmer, a guy who's a, uh, a supporter of uh, President uh, Trump, who is one of these people who's uh, he's from Oculus VR, uh, and he, invent he designed the actual Oculus piece that people use, the headset that people use. You talk about him and how he's like this 26-year-old, and he comes off online as this very cool guy, and he's into this automizing of uh, automating of weapons technologies. So, Emily, how does it become cool? How do these people become celebrities, even promoting the coolness of artificial intelligence being weaponized? Yeah, I mean, well, we see it now. We see AI in in every aspect of our lives now, right? Um, and and it's it's not going away. You know that that ship has sailed to a certain extent. That. Uh, you know, the Pentagon has said they're dead set on on kind of implementing it uh, across the agency and and the federal government implements it in 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 a variety of ways across agencies. It's it's honestly more present in our lives than we even even realize uh, necessarily on a daily basis. Um, obviously, you know, these kinds of Amazon Alexa and, and all of these kinds of products are AI. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I think people are very taken with it to, to that extent. And if, if we're using this tech in our daily lives, then I think it naturally follows that people feel that, well, why shouldn't the military have access to the same, uh, if not greater technology, but, uh, you know, it, it, it obviously comes uh, with much at a much greater risk and at a much greater cost when it's being used in 
even just to support lethal operations uh, like Project Maven is, you know, helping select targeting rather than being uh, directly an autonomous weapon, it still still comes at a high cost. And researchers uh, that were hired by the Department of Defense to uh, do a study on the use, uses of AI for the military, uh, they were hired by DOD and issued the same kind of warning in their report. They said, you know, the, the safeguards aren't there, the audit trail isn't there. And when you're talking about life and death situations, uh, that could pose a real problem for DOD trying to, to implement this in a responsible way. Allie, uh, both you and Emily write that the question of the impact of AI in America's launching wars is not the question that Washington is obsessing over. Retired military officials, defense outlets, and pundits alike have instead been pontificating about what it means for the Department of Defense and key Trump officials to regularly insist that the country's national security focus is shifting from a struggle against insurgent groups like al-Qaeda and the Islamic State to the growing influence of what are termed near-peer enemies, a fancy phrase for China and Russia. Ali, is automation the only way the U.S. can both bring the troops home and shift focus militarily to China and Russia, with each having far more formidable forces than the nations who've been fighting in the war on terror, is the only way to fulfill both promises to automate war? So I would say definitely not. Um, I don't actually know what the Trump administration's answer for complete automation would be to, to do that. I think actually what's really been missing in this conversation, though, is whether we're ending the war on terror because Trump keeps talking about bringing the troops home, ending the wars. He's, you know, tried to bring the troops back from Afghanistan, tried to bring some troops back from Syria. But what we keep seeing is this uh, phrase that says, but we will continue counter-terrorism operations as long as we see fit. But that doesn't actually end the wars. It actually just makes them automated. It it, uh, makes our blood and treasure leave. So the American people stop focusing on it while the people overseas in the eight countries that were bombing continue to feel the brunt of that war and that brunt of that impact. Um, I think with the attention to the great power competition that's going to happen between the US, Russia, and China, I think one, Washington and the foreign policy blob really do love their weapons. Uh, We can talk about missile defense or drone swarms all day, but when we talk about the actual impacts of war, uh, a lot of that is lost. Um, And so when when we're talking just about Russia and China in a vacuum, we forget that we're already embroiled in eight other wars. And I think what automation really ends up doing is just making it so that not only do we have one endless war on terror, but we have hundreds of other wars going on simultaneously that no one knows exist. Emily, is the the war in Syria, or anywhere for that matter, that the U.S. is engaged in the military, is it being downplayed, do you think, to any degree within the media because those wars are being fought with drones? Does the, just the presence of drones make it so the media is not as interested in fighting the war or uh, reporting on the wars? 
Yeah, of course. And and it's more than that. You know, it, it, it is it's it's drones in general across the board have absolutely, absolutely reduced media coverage uh, and, and public attention on the wars for, for obvious reasons. Um, the, the government doesn't even acknowledge them uh, for the most part. Um, but, you know, when we're talking about uh, even Syria or places like that, where we're dealing mainly with with airstrikes rather than troops on the ground. Um, it is obviously uh, uh, more remote. It's more difficult. It's more difficult for the media to cover that that type of combat, even if it wanted to, um, because you can't you can't embed in that kind of situation. You can't be on the front lines. You can't see what's happening. So even if the media wanted to cover it and 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 keep it at the forefront of the of the national conversation, they really couldn't. And then even beyond all that, to take that a step further, the Trump administration has started rolling back the types of information that it's publicly releasing. So uh, at the end of last year, beginning of this year, they stopped releasing a lot of information about airstrike targeting uh, and that they had formally released publicly frequently. They've stopped releasing uh, a bunch of information about progress in Afghanistan. Uh, they rolled back uh, an Obama-era executive order provision that would have required reporting public re- reporting on drone strikes. Um, so they've actually rolled back a lot of that information even further. And even if the public's not necessarily paying attention to those kinds of releases, uh, the media does uh, occasionally report on them. So so that makes that job uh, more difficult as well. So there's really a lot of layers uh, to this. But of course, you know, at the very basic level, the technology does does make it more difficult. We are speaking. With, I'm sorry, I just want to reintroduce you real quick. Military. We are speaking to military and national security policy analysts, Emily Manna and Ellie Harputlian, who uh, have written, co-written the uh, article at Tom Dispatch, The End of War is Just a Beginning. Will technology stamp a forever on America's wars? You were going to say something, Allie. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, of course. And I was just going to bring up, I think the other hard part about media coverage in any of these wars is that the war on terror has been going on for 18 years. That is not one news story. Just the background information on the war on terror has taken up many books. When we try to get people to understand what's going on in Syria, for example. People here at Coin does the Syrian civil war, the Yemen civil war, trying to explain all the different proxy forces and America's role in it isn't, isn't easy to explain. And so if it's not done consistently, we only get these, you know, sensationalized one story pieces that while might be showing a part of the war, aren't showing the full story just because the full story is so long. Well, Ellie, let me just follow up on that real quick. How effective do you think an only drone cam- campaign can be in what is still the war on terror, no matter what they call it? Is this an efficient or effective way in fighting terror? Um, I, I, I personally do not think it's an effective way to wage war. I'm not a military analyst, so I'll probably have a lot of people telling me I don't know what I'm talking about. But I, I think it comes down, the way that I always describe it to people outside of the D.C. national security space is if another country bombed my mother's house and then told me they were there to protect me and they did it to protect me and then didn't even apologize for it, I would spend the rest of my life wanting justice. And so I think when it, we, when it thinks about drone strikes and we think about the thousands of civilians we've killed, 
most outside monitoring groups put it around 7,000 to 12,000 civilians just in this latest iteration of the war on ISIS in Iraq and Syria. This this is multiplied. That re- that feeling for justice and that lack of accountability w- just feeds off itself. So if we're trying to win an insurgency, an insurgent war, we have to win the hearts and minds. And I know that people have said this for 18 years at this point, but we're not doing that when we kill people's families. And that's exactly even what Trump campaigned on. And it's what we're seeing. He might talk about ending the wars, but we've actually just seen an increase in airstrikes and an increase in civilian casualties because he hasn't prioritized that. Emily, who are the other nations supposedly that are chasing artificial intelligence weaponry that the U.S. is trying to keep up with? Who are these other nations? Or is that just a story to tell us so we'll be glad to fund more artificial intelligence and weaponry? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, I do think that in in particular in the development of the tech, uh, it will be easier for uh, smaller countries to kind of emerge as leaders in developing the technology. It's a little bit uh, more of an open playing field um, because so much of it is being done in the private sector uh, rather than by large governments uh, necessarily. But on the other hand, it does kind of uh, feed into a pretty useful narrative for the military to continue, you know, kind of demanding more funding. Um, And uh, crucially, as we've been talking about demanding very little oversight and very little accountability of their of their use of these technologies. And I want to get into that impact of privatization in just a moment. But but Ali, first, I want to ask you, uh, as you guys point out, it seems as troops leave, as they're replaced with drone strikes, they're often replaced with more emphasis on personnel from the CIA. How are wars fought differently by the CIA than the military? Because I don't think the public has an understanding of that whatsoever. Uh, So that's because we don't actually know that much. The things that we do know about how the CIA differs from the military and drone strikes is uh, the biggest way is that they do not actually have to report their strikes. Uh, We don't know how they target or why they target or who they target. Um, We have found that from, honestly, from really great dogged reporting uh, that there is a CIA drone base in Niger uh, alongside the $328 million military drone base that they are creating on the other side of the country. But with CIA and the killing that they do with drones, it happens with impunity, and it also happens outside of legal war zones. So places like Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan are all technically war zones as by like international law. But when it comes to places like Yemen and Somalia and those gray zones of are we at war, are we not, that's where we've seen CIA's drone strikes proliferate. And happen. Um, And we've also seen the worst civilian casualties with them. I think Emily has done a lot of work on CIA, so she might also have something to add on this. Uh, Go ahead, Emmy. Emily? No, I mean, Ali's absolutely right. There there are far fewer uh, transparency requirements and accountability mechanisms uh, for the CIA, uh, which does which does exacerbate all of the issues that we're already uh, speaking about when it comes to the military. Well, Emily, uh, one of the things that you guys write about is how on Election Day 2018, journalist Ezra Klein made the claim that America isn't 
at war, although he was subsequently dragged on Twitter for the statement. It points to a bigger problem. America's wars have become so invisible that even people who theoretically might report on them seem to be forgetting about them. To you, what explains someone like Ezra Klein, who consumes the news for a living every day, I see him on CNN regularly, would think we are not at war. What does it say to you about our wars when the editor at large of Vox, a former columnist at the Washington Post, former writer at the American Prospect, a writer who has expressed his opposition to the Iraq war in the past, believes that we're not at war? Yeah, it's it's really stunning, you know, and it's backed up by polls uh, of the public uh, as well. Uh, there was a recent poll that that showed something like 40 percent of the American public also uh, did not know we're still at war in Afghanistan. And, and even more strikingly, another poll showed 85 percent of the public could not correctly name the year the Iraq war started. I mean, those are those 85%. That's a pretty scary, uh, pretty scary number. And, and I think that's reinforced by the government. Both the Obama and Trump administrations have um, issued documents, um, national security strategies or defense strategies that refer to this as peacetime, um, which just, it just doesn't make any sense. And, and quite frankly, it's disrespectful, not only to, to the troops who are serving overseas, but also to the civilians living in the Middle East and, and North Africa and elsewhere who are living under the threat of, of U.S. bombs every day. And I think that's really what it comes down to, is that it's easy for Americans, even even ones like Ezra Klein, to forget um, that this is wartime because the vast majority of the impact is falling on people in other countries who don't vote in the U.S. and who don't have a voice here in the U.S., uh, to what you were saying, um, and I want to ask Ali a question about this, but to what you were saying, I was in some discussion on social media today, and I said that the Obama administration had increased Americans' uh, participation in wars, the number of wars that they were engaged in overseas throughout his administration. And somebody who was a, an Obama supporter said, tell me where, where are these wars that he expanded? Which <laughs> is frightening to me because Somalia, Yemen, uh, you can go on Uganda, uh, Iraq in a second intervention. You can uh, Northwest Pakistan. All, there's all these wars, eight wars that we're engaged in, as you were saying, a whole bunch of other secret exploits that we're involved in that, that we don't even know about. And you guys write about how, in fact, all of the plans that purport to essentially draw down, if not end the global war on terror, have resulted so far in anything but that. And if you'll excuse me for calling you both guys, um, one of the things that I always <laughs> heard was uh, Ali during the Obama administration, some of his supporters argued that Obama couldn't be as anti-war as he wanted because the powers that be, whoever they are, leaders within the Democratic Party itself or the opposition, the House and Senate, maybe power brokers from elsewhere within the congressional military industrial complex, that those powers had somehow tied Obama's hands and made it so he couldn't stop the wars, no matter how much he promised to do so and how much he wanted to do so. And Trump promised the end of these wars, but he continues to expand them. So, Ali, could Obama and or Trump have stopped these wars, but there's something systemic, there's some huge obstacle keeping them from doing it. Is there some sort of, and good Lord, I'm going to puke when I say these words, deep state behind the wars? Uh, I can't I can't comment to say if there is a deep state. Um, I do believe that I think the apparatus, the national security apparatus is so much bigger than we think about. Um, I mean, if you look at the top weapons manufacturers like Boeing, Raytheon, Lockheed, and then you go and look at senators and representatives 
uh, who are supposed to be representing us and who they actually get their most money from, you'll see across the board, even from Democrats, even from people like Bernie Sanders, that those those companies donate to them. And so when you're beholden to these special interests, I think it does get a lot harder. Um, I think that, unfortunately, Obama and if Trump actually means it, both have not tried hard enough. And also, if they are thinking about it, then I don't understand where the plan is. Because I think the hardest part is actually, how do you, it's easy to start a war, but ending a war is a lot harder. And we can see some of the rebuilding that happened in Iraq after the first stage of the Iraq war, but we're not also seeing that in Mosul or in Raqqa. So when we're ending the war, we're leaving a decimated state uh, which I think at the end of the day, Obama and Trump both have, you know, that that problem seems that they feel it's out of their hands, unfortunately. But if they can't stop it, then really who can? And Emily, uh, as far as when it comes to uh, privatization, you point out how private companies have no commitment to public accountability and will be deeply involved in creating this new artificial intelligence weaponized technology. Why is there a lack of oversight of private companies when they are working on government contracts for the military? Well, I mean, part of that is certainly the the special interest that uh, that Ali mentioned, the kinds of political donations and lobbying efforts that that major companies like Amazon uh, undertake in Washington. They have a lot of influence. Uh, and and the government is becoming increasingly reliant on private contractors. It's increasingly mixed to the point where it's sometimes difficult to tell, particularly in the national security agencies, who is a contractor and who is not. Uh, and in in the national security agencies in particular, there's there's already vast secrecy, and then that's compounded by these companies that uh, that really demand. Uh, a certain level of secrecy uh, to protect their own work and to protect themselves from accountability um, in order to contract with the government. And and the government needs these companies because, you know, DOD just doesn't have the the expertise. Uh, it's, it's hindered by too much bureaucracy. There's a million reasons why DOD can't, you know, develop this kind of tech itself necessarily. It needs the companies to do it faster, um, and to do it more efficiently. So, uh, you know, on that end, the government kind of feels like, well, if we're going to be able to contract with these companies, then we need to give in to all their demands about secrecy and things like that. We just saw that DOD responded to a freedom of information request from a reporter saying that every single page, every single document related to Google's work on Project Maven is considered uh, critical infrastructure information and can't be released to the public. I mean, that's that's crazy. That's a crazy level of secrecy. And, you know, the suspicion is that that's something that, that Google kind of wanted from DOD in order to work on this project. So it really does make the accountability issue that much worse. But what happened is, as you know, 4,000 Google employees had ultimately uh, signed a petition and said that they did not want to work on Project Maven, which seems kind of unprecedented. The only other thing I could think of that was like that would might be the Durham, South Africa dock protests against apartheid. I can't really, you know, that wouldn't allow certain weapons to get into South Africa. I couldn't really remember a corporation standing up to the military and saying that we do not want your worker. At least their workers are saying that. How sustainable is that kind of protest? Can Silicon Valley save us from artificial intelligence and autonomous weaponry because through their moralism? 
Well, I think a little bit of it is that some of these employees, especially the high up AI researchers who are actually working on this technology, are kind of the canary in the coal mine. They're shouting the alarm. If we choose not to listen, then I think they've tried to warn us. I don't know how sustainable it is because think about it. Employee protests, especially when you're working from inside, are one, just exhausting. Um, I saw that two of the women who were leading some of the protests at Google about um, Dra their work with Dragonfly, which is the China censorship and AI stuff, uh, they'd been retaliated against. They'd been demoted. They One of them was told that they could no longer uh, work at the nonprofit that they founded on AI ethics. These, these are real people with real jobs. And so I don't know how sustainable it is to think that these employees can keep up the pressure forever. Um, but I think that seeing other people that aren't just um, I, I am an activist, I work with activists, but who aren't just activists and who are standing up because they believe that it's their moral and ethical responsibility because they understand the the limits and the consequences of building this technology is something that resonates with a lot of people outside of the Beltway, which is great and does bring more attention to the issue. Um, but, you know, then what is our answer? We can't just stop um, because they protested. Um, I also think that, you know, when we're looking at Silicon Valley as a whole, I don't, I would not say that they can save us, especially, I mean, the military and Silicon Valley and technology in general have had a very close relationship over the years. I mean, back in 2015, Ash Carter went to Silicon Valley. He was the secretary of defense under Obama. He has become the Silicon Valley whisperer. He is trying to get more people to work with the military, more companies to work there. And so I think that we're going to see a lot of I, that, a little bit of that military industrial complex that you're talking about in Silicon Valley, um, because some of the more activist employees like from Google or IBM um, will also be rivaled with employees um, from places like Palmer Lucky's organization or um, Ash Carter's who see working closely with the military as an inherently good thing and also have the credentials to fight to, you know, battle it out um, in the public sector. Emily, hey, can I add, oh, go sorry, ahead. Can I go to that real quickly. I just wanted to, to, to agree with what Ali said and also just to emphasize that there really is no substitute for better rules and better laws uh, and better accountability on these issues. We saw when when Google uh, dealt with the Project Maven backlash and, and kind of first made that commitment not to renew the contract. But since then, after things have quieted down, Google has kind of hedged on that commitment and has hinted that, that maybe they're going to continue working with the military and they're going to continue doing these things. Microsoft and Amazon, even after Google committed not to, not to renew the contract, contract immediately kind of stepped in and said, we're 100% committed to working with the military and law enforcement. So even when one company faces backlash, the others are there to kind of step in and say, well, no worries, we'll just take the contract. So I don't think that that's long term, that that's a sustainable uh, strategy. I think we really have to focus pressure on the government. Uh, um, Allie, let me just ask you one more, a couple more questions here. Uh, so Allie, first of all, uh, is our drive to bring the troops home, creating an environment that is ripe for more violent wars. Is what we get from bringing the troops home, from having peace, at least within our own troops, 
more violence and more wars against others overseas? I think that that is definitely part of it. I also think that when we open ourselves up to more war in more countries and more bombing, we're going to see consequences. We're going to actually, you know, other people, other countries, if we're even thinking about great power competition with China and Russia, they have the capabilities to bomb us if that if that's what they wanted. We can't just think that we can continue to act with impunity. Um, and I, I think that it really behooves us to think about not only bringing our troops home, which once again, I would no one is saying that we shouldn't bring the troops home. I think the real danger here is that by playing into Trump's false narrative about ending the wars, we make it easier for the American people to forget about what is being done in their name. And with all this new technology that is flooding into the war zones without any transparency, as Emily has talked about, it's getting even easier for the government to hide what we're doing and for the people to ignore it. So if we don't, it's not an end. They're trying to rebrand it. And if we rebrand this these wars, all we're going to see is more war because violence just begets violence. We've seen it happen over and over again. All right. I have uh, oh, no, one more question for you, uh, Emily, and that is, um, you know, we have uh, use of AI weaponization is now actually being helped by Amazon. Doesn't seem like there's any consumer boycott of Amazon over this, though there should be. So, Emily, where's the anti-war movement when it comes to the drone war? That's a great question. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's been difficult. Uh, it's been difficult as these wars have become normalized and faded from the public view. It's been difficult, I think, to maintain the public momentum and energy uh, around an anti-war movement. But I think things are changing. Uh, Ali could tell you also that that generationally things are changing. Um, there's there's also become a kind of a new uh, coalition, I think, on both the right and left that's kind of been a little bit of strange bedfellows, but that's kind of started to develop as, as folks are starting to break away from the foreign policy consensus in Washington, starting to ask more questions, starting to demand more information. I do think that's coming. Um, but you know, we're, we're still a little ways off from a real, uh, grassroots, um, nationwide movement for accountability. I've got one last question for each of you. Our final question for each and every one of our guests we have on the show is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask her. You might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. We have been speaking with military and national security policy analyst Emily Manna and media associate Allegra Hartputlian. They are co-authors of the Tom Dispatch article, The End of War is Just a Beginning. Will technology stamp a forever on America's wars? Let's start with you, Allie. We've now been at war for 19 years. Does artificial intelligence mean the U.S. will never be at peace again. After all, the U.S. has been at war and at more and more wars for the entire century so far. If you are 18 or 19 years old, you do not know a United States that isn't engaged in at least one war. How much, then, Allegra, does artificial intelligence ensure the fact that the U.S. will always be at war as long as there is a U.S.? Well, I... I think, you know, the pragmatic in me is being like, oh, yeah, we definitely could be in be in war for the rest of our lives and for the rest of our children's lives and, you know, go on down my spiral. But I I do see 
some hope for change. I think if we look even at um, other domestic movements that have been growing, especially in the time of Trump, um, but you know, have been festering for 18 years, like the gun control movement, um, climate change, those activists, especially those young activists, believe that they can make change and we have seen the results of those actions. I think when they start to realize and start, I think when we're able to put a little bit more focus on what the wars actually mean um, in their lives and even in their issues. So with March for Our Lives, they talked about the weapons of war and had the veterans groups talk about why that shouldn't be there, why they shouldn't be in the country. When we look at climate change, one of the biggest polluters in the world are all of our military bases. We There's ways that war impact each of these huge issues that we're already seeing movement on and seeing passion on. And that gives me hope that at some point we're going to be able to shift that paradigm and actually understand and be able to say truthfully, unlike Ezra Klein, that we're not at war. Emily, my question from Elle for you is, is there a candidate running for president that is running on an anti-war platform? Is there anyone running for president? I don't care if it's William Weld who's running as a Republican against Donald Trump. I don't care who it is. Is there anybody who is saying and will truthfully fulfill the promise of bringing peace in our time? Honestly, the answer to that is no as of right now. There are there are candidates who certainly come closer than others uh, from what we've heard out there. Uh, and you know we heard we did hear that rhetoric from from President Trump to a certain extent on the campaign trail as well. He obviously hasn't lived up to it. Um, I think a lot more work has to be done. Uh, there has to be there have to be those calls from the grassroots and the public. And I really so I hope that Ali is right. Uh, I, I think she is. I'm hopeful, too. Um, but, you know, we do need to see more of a call from the public. It is changing when you I, I'd actually draw more attention to some of the younger members of Congress who are starting their first term, who have started to challenge the status quo, the bipartisan consensus around foreign policy in a more real way and have really, uh, really started that conversation. I think um, I think that conversation's just beginning. Um, the question is whether even if some of the, the candidates on the Democratic side uh, start to talk about endless war, and they have, they've started to talk about it. But the, the real question is whether should they win, they, they are truly committed to the idea of ending endless war, or whether they pursue the Obama style, you know, idea of, well, we need to keep the capability for drones, we need to, to keep this presence in all of these different places, we need to keep all of these authorities. Uh, so, you know, I think a lot has yet to be seen, but I'm hopeful that this new energy around challenging that foreign policy status quo will, will mean some real change. That's Emily Manna. She is a policy analyst at Open the Government. You can find out more about that organization at openthegovernment.org. We've also been speaking with Allegra Harputlian, who is a media associate at Rethink Media, which you can find more online about at rethinkmedia.org. Thank you both so much for being on our show this week. This has been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate all the work that you put into the article. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thanks Thanks so much, Chuck. It was great to be here. All right. Take care and enjoy the rest of your evening. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. There's a huge debate raging on the left about whether class or race is the guiding force in our most oppressive politics. 
Our next guest says the white left gets black political life completely wrong, erasing class from those discussions and seeing all black politics as one monolithic belief. We will find out how and why the white left gets black politics all wrong when we talk to African-American studies and political science scholar Cedric Johnson, who wrote the article, What Black Life Actually Looks Like. Cedric's writing appeared in Jacobin but was originally published at New Politics. You can find New Politics at newpol.org. Alex, do you want to tell me what you've been up to on social media now, or do you want to push that off till later? Uh, I can do it now, so because we, uh, we have Jeffy on later. So, uh, All right. See, okay. it's, uh, uh, one thing that the most shared thing, so I think maybe we should uh, look into people's, uh, look into what people are interested in here, is I shared a uh, link from the Decolonial Atlas headlined, Names and Locations of the Top 100 People Killing the Planet. <laughs> so, uh, have at him, everyone. That got, <laughs> no. that got a lot of shares. Um, I liked how uh, Jessica posted just a guillotine dropping. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate the fact that you're promoting capital punishment. And I you know, don't I'm necessarily re- mind. You know, you know, when things change and when things start to change, I think I'm going to turn my, uh, I, I might change my opinion on capital punishment. Let's uh, see who's in charge. Let's <laughs> see know. who's in charge. I, could, I used to think that I'd always be against it, but uh, yeah, I might come around. <laughs> I'll um, never forget one of my old friends telling me, you know what, Chuck? I don't believe in murder. But if anybody ever hit a dog, I'd line him up against that wall and shoot him in the head. <laughs> what, dude? What? <laughs> what? Uh, kind of with your friend on that one. <laughs> um, also, I shared a really good piece by writer uh, in Chicago and John Wilmus, uh, who is also the co-host of my favorite basketball podcast, Take It or Break It. But he had a new piece at Jacobin called God and Mammon at Loyola which is all about uh, graduate worker labor struggles at Loyola. That's uh, mm. really interesting. Uh, it's a really great piece of reporting. Uh, and then one of my favorite things I shared this week was a piece called For the Love of Winning, an Open Letter to Extinction Rebellion. From, and it's from a ZAD member. Uh, it's really great, sort of wonderful essay on climate change and activism um, from somebody who won and had a sort of tenuous win uh, with the ZAD in Paris uh, or in France. Uh, so I recommend reading that too. And uh, also on Instagram, I shared a bunch of pictures of your bunker. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate that. You know, I have cyanide tablets in here just in case things go wrong. It's time for listener feedback. Our first email to Chuck at thisishell.com is from Greg. And it's about my monologue last week at the beginning of the show when I pleaded. I begged with everyone, do not legalize it, as in weed, because the law which enforces capitalism will ruin pot, guaranteed, no question about it. Capitalism is going to kill cannabis. So Greg writes, Hi Chuck, longtime listener of This Is Hell, which I thoroughly enjoy, though disagree with sometimes. I beg your pardon, because I disagree with it sometimes too. However, the most recent episode that was prefaced with a polemic against the legalization of cannabis was more on point than you know. <laughs> really? Pretty presumptuous of you, don't you think, Greg? I work within the cannabis legalization industry from a regulatory and legal standpoint, and there has been an absolute failure on what they call the social equity aspect of cannabis because, or cannabis business regulatory approval, especially on the local municipal level. I have seen this firsthand, and if it, we do not begin to explore this particular problem fully and at present, the industry will be taken over by ever larger companies. Big canna, as in cannabis, is all but guaranteed with these policies that celebrate social justice in name only with minimal effectiveness in their implementation. Thanks for raising awareness about this with listeners. 
Best Greg. See, I told you. And Greg is involved in the regulatory and legal aspects of legalizing herb. So Greg should know. Last weekend, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker, during his peace conference announcing the legalization of recreational pot, made a huge deal about social equity within his legalization plan. Pritzker was making promises of 20% of this going to the areas most affected by the wars on drugs. In other words, poorer areas where police aggressively enforce any and every law. Pritzker even said the government would limit the potency of Bud, but not how he would do that, who would be doing the testing, or who would be tested, or who gets the testing contract. Mind you, unregulated pot has not had an issue with pot being too strong, and if it is for you, then send that keef to me, because I've yet to ever smoke any ganj that's too strong. Oh, and you can grow, but you can't sell unless you have a license, which again, sounds in entirely unenforceable. Also, who's the first idiot to go downtown to get a dealing license? Are they going to have tax stickers for your pot bags? Like that failed program in Arizona many years ago when the first guy to show up to get his license and tax stickers was busted for dealing? I know it might be too late for Illinois, but wherever you are, please do not legalize it decriminalize it. Oracle writes about an interview we did a couple months ago. Awesome interview, Chuck. Jacob Hamburger and the new atheist. That connected a bunch of dots. Never would have heard that anywhere else. Be well, Oracle. And if you are interested in new atheism, go to thisishell.com and search on Jacob Hamburger. We got an email from Steve Perry from Journey, not Joe Perry from Aerosmith. At least I assume it's the same Steve Perry. Steve writes, Chuck, on a recent program, you requested information about alternative plans to the Green New Deal. Here's an idea that I would love to get going if I had at least six other people and a skilled web manager to work with. Well, we're going to get to his, Steve's idea of how he can fix the Green New Deal a little bit later on this morning's show because we have our guest on the line right now. Turns out black people, black political life isn't as monolithic as many on the left believe, especially those who are white and on the left. Believe it or not, class differences have an impact on black political life, too. Who knew? Go figure. Here to tell us how and why the white left gets black politics so wrong, African-American studies and political science scholar Cedric Johnson wrote the article, What Black Life Actually Looks Like, which appeared in Jacobin, but was originally published at New Politics, and you can find New Politics at newpol.org. That's N-E-W-P-O-L dot org. Welcome to the show, Cedric. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you on this show. Really a pleasure. This is an enlightening article, and I really appreciate the immense work you put into this and the intense, deep thinking you put into this. You write that, uh, well, first of all, you write that, uh, like most great slogans, Black Lives Matters advanced a rather straightforward, if not simplistic, analysis of the issue at hand, that the problems of policing were primarily racial. Black Lives Matter fervor also unleashed a torrent of historical misinformation, conspiracy theory, and wrong-headed thinking about politics. Was any of that historical misinformation, conspiracy theory, wrong-headed thinking about politics that happened in response to Black Lives Matter not intended to be in opposition to Black Lives Matter? That is, did Black Lives Matter lead to even liberal misinformation related to race when maybe the intention wasn't negative, but intended to be 
positive, yet it reinforced some right. stereotype or bias. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of good intentions, right? You know, and, and the thing I'd say first off is that, you know, I, I celebrate um, what Black Lives Matter has done, you know, for the most part. I mean, I think it opened up a different kind of conversation about policing, uh, about the carceral state. It's not that people weren't already criticizing some of the practices, um, but it really, you know, it really galvanized so many different forces that have been struggling in isolation. And um, it really helped, you know, a lot of different, um, you know, um, organizations that have been campaigning to try to change laws at the state level, um, groups that have been fighting for justice for specific families. And so there's a lot of great things that have happened as a result of it. Uh, at the same time, though, right, it's sort of like the way these things get taken up and the way the slogan works, it really obscures um, the fundamental dynamics at play, right, which is to say that when we look at the problem of over-policing, and in particular uh, police killings, even if we were to stop the numbers of um, black civilians being killed by police tomorrow, right, and we were to completely bring that number down to zero, the United States would still outpace all of the civilized nations in terms of police violence against civilians, right? So it's even even just from that very basic metric, um, we're not looking at a problem that's fundamentally racial, right? Black people are over-policed, in particular working-class black people are over-policed. But um, in, that, in that regard, they share a similar predicament of whites, Latinos, and other groups who are also situated as working-class um, people who are located in places where the informal economy is dominant, or where, you know, the drug economy is dominant, even if they don't participate in it, right, they're subjected to the same scrutiny, the same harassment by, by police. So I think overall, to go back to your original question, there's great intentions in a lot of this stuff, but I just think the way people take it up um, loses sight of what we need to do as well as create slogans. We also need serious investigation of our world and serious attention to history before we jump to conclusions. You write that in elevating a race-centric interpretation of American life and history, Black Lives Matter has actually had the effect of making it more difficult to think critically and honestly about black life as it exists in all of its complexity and contradictions. Why does making it race-centric also make it more difficult to think critically and honestly about black life as it exists? Why doesn't making it race-centric lead to more of a focus on black life and therefore more of an understanding and a learning experience about what black life is really like? Yeah, I mean, I think so. It, for some people, right, and maybe we should we could add a finer point to it. Certainly, there are people who have, uh, you know, taken this moment and begin to explore and read. And I feel fortunate, you know, being able to participate in some of the debates that have happened since, uh, you know, the the Trayvon Martin killing and the creation of the hashtag Black Lives Matter. So uh, I think that that, you know, just to be clear, there's there's definitely some of that happening, right? There is some discussion, there is some debate. I think people are sharpening their their perspectives. At the same time, um, there is this prevalence of um, views that we could, we could summarize as a kind of new Jim Crow interpretation of mass incarceration, um, which, again, you know, doesn't necessarily account for the dynamics beyond cities and beyond the viral videos uh, which tend to, to be so memorable and, and um, reprehensible, right? So I think that's one of the issues that I'm, that I'm concerned about in the series of, of articles I've written 
is getting at the heart of, you know, or maybe pushing people to think of how do we address this problem more broadly, right? How do we go beyond uh, mass demonstrations and Facebook rants, social media rants towards building power um, that doesn't just involve the the sort of woke, to use the phrase of the, uh, the um, you know, the movement itself, woke constituencies, but also includes people in other parts of the country who may not, they may not have even the language to address the problems that they have, right? You know, so for instance, the, the states with the highest per capita uh, killings of civilians by police are places where there's, there's almost negligible black population. So how do we begin to think in those terms? Like we can actually build uh, struggles that go beyond cities like Baltimore or, or Chicago or places like Ferguson, but actually encompass the country more broadly and, and lay bare the dynamics at work. Because I think, again, as I say in this article, we're not just looking at a problem of policing black people. Right. Even black people are selectively policed. You know, we're looking at specific zip codes that constitute the majority of people who are in prison. We're looking at specific uh, demographics, even within the black population, who bear the brunt of over policing um, and, and conviction and incarceration. So I think even then we need to think more specifically about who's being policed and, and why. And a lot of it, you know, for me, it goes back to the broader problem of uh, the society, right? Moving away from the kind of um, affluent society that many Americans enjoyed during the 1950s and 60s, where there's a sort of rapid expansion of uh, suburbia. There's a, there's a tremendous amount of manufacturing, which is still happening in the country. And uh, many people are enjoying that. Blacks, in particular, working class and poor blacks don't get a chance to be incorporated into that that great, you know, um, moment. And we're still reeling from that, right? And especially now with, with deindustrialization, you see the problem spreading, right? Joblessness, lack of opportunities. And what we've done as a society, we've moved away from using the welfare state to manage inequality. And we've moved towards the carceral state as the fundamental way of managing inequality. And that's a problem that includes um, black people in some states, but in other places like Kentucky, the majority of those who are incarcerated are, uh, are white. So I think, again, Black Lives Matter opens the door, but we have to spend some time trying to think critically about what, what the society looks like, what the fundamental dynamics at play are, and how we can actually build um, majority support for a different kind of order, which doesn't rely on jails and policing to manage inequality. You wrote a 2017, an essay in 2017 for the fantastic publication Catalyst called The Panthers Can't Save Us Now. And uh, it is a great, great writing. And then you had a couple of responses to it, one from urban studies scholar Maya White, another one from labor studies scholar Kim Moody. Two people, Kim Moody's been on our show before, two people who you have the utmost respect for, but you disagree with them on their analysis when it comes to what is happening with black political life. So I don't want to get bogged down too much into their writing because I want to talk to you about your writing. That's why we're having you on the show. So what does it say to you about where you agree and you disagree with White and Moody? Do you agree to a point and they veer in another direction? Because 
I'm curious for my own sake, for my own thinking, and for our listeners' thinking, is there a fork in the road? Is there a choice that we should all be aware of when considering black political life that may misdirect us toward a position that ends up reinforcing stereotypes, biases, even racism? Right. So uh, let me say a couple of things, right? The, the one target of my criticism in a lot of the work that I've done has been of um, the notions of black political life that come out of the black power movement, right? So I'll start there. Um, and I think those ideas still circulate. They're still popular. I'll clarify what they are in a second, but they're still popular. They're still prevalent. And, and they can be, um, they're true up to a point, right? They have some, some legitimacy. Um, and so basically during the 1960s, right, as black populations in places like Detroit, New Orleans, Atlanta begin to reach um, pluralities or even majorities in some, some cities, black people are, are um, emboldened, right? They're ready to, to take over and to pursue the same model of urban empowerment that had been pursued by other groups before them, right? And so, you know, we saw the same thing play out uh, in other, other cities when Irish reached a critical point where they were the majority, they would elect their own mayors, city council persons, and what have you. And so because of the, the major civil rights legislation and a lot of the changes during the 1960s, blacks were now in a position to do what other groups had done and to, to engage in the same process of, um, you know, ethnic incorporation, and, you know, a lot of black power rhetoric, we recall it as being really militant, but underneath it, you know, when people really tried to operationalize the idea of black power, what it really meant was taking control of those institutions in the cities and the places where black people lived. So in a short period of time, you would see um, the election of waves of black elected officials um, beginning uh, in the late 60s with, I guess, first the appointment of Walter Washington uh, as the the chief executive person in uh, the district of Columbia. And then you would see the election of, of, um, you know, Kenneth Gibson who recently passed away in Newark, New Jersey, uh, Carl Stokes in Cleveland, Richard Hatcher here in Gary, Indiana, and it would just keep coming. Right. So for, for the next couple of decades. So by the time we get to the, the end of the 1980s, every city, including Chicago, uh, every major city, um, you know, Chicago, Los Angeles, and even New York would elect a black mayor, and many others would have um, a black mayor, black uh, urban regime, where it would be like a black mayor control of the of city council, as well as control of, of uh, you know, black, control of the, the mayor's office and city council, right? So you'd have black power across the board. And I think, you know, that that mattered in a certain way, Right. Here's where I probably would disagree with the, the kind of, of, of a, um, focus on black ethnic politics that you hear both in Kim Moody's work and also in, in Maya White's response. And that's that this, this was complicated at the local level, right? When you look at a place like Detroit, um, the choices that are made by black regimes, by black city councils, black mayors, which were uh, at times beneficial to their constituencies, and at times at odds with different parts of their constituencies, right? So the whole idea about black power and seizing control of, of city hall was that once you had elected blacks in office, they would govern differently from, um, from whites, right? And that was the, that was the optimism or sort of optimistic view that people had. That's not exactly what happened and played out, right? Once 
Um, blacks took control of City Hall in many in many respects. They had to govern uh, in the same ways as their predecessors, and they were subject to the same pressures to pursue a development, um, you know, path, economic development path that involved the same kinds of practices, right? So giving tax breaks to corporations to try to lure uh, investment, shifting money towards downtown, building a tourist uh, economy and infrastructure. And so really, you know, in a lot of cities, you know, in, in the first wave, you know, that first wave of black elected officials and urban governors, right, you actually saw, you know, them trying to try to balance the needs of their electoral constituency and the needs of, uh, you know, developing the city as a whole and trying to pull cities out of the the post-industrial slump. Um, but ultimately, right, a lot of them would have to break from that, that path and have to commit almost exclusively to downtown development. And that would bring, in, bring them in odds or at odds with um, public sector unions. It would bring them in the, into contradiction or conflict with neighborhood organizations. And for me, and this might be something that your, your audience might be interested in, one of the best books, recent books about this, is by James Foreman Jr., who's a Yale uh, law professor. He's also uh, the son of, of James Foreman, the, the civil rights activist uh, with SNCC. And James Foreman Jr.'s book, Locking Up Our Own, really gives us a sense of what those contradictions look like on the ground. And he focuses on the District of Columbia during the 1970s and 80s. And he looks at, uh, sort, of, sort of tries to answer this question. Why is that a place like Washington, D.C. would pass some of the most uh, punitive crime and policing uh, policies, even though they had a majority black uh, population and black control of the, the mayor's office and the city council? And what he finds is that it's a complicated uh, scenario, right? I mean, you've got people who are making decisions that in the short run seem like the right decisions to make, but ultimately they would have unintended consequences, right? And when you look at his work, again, it's, it stands in sharp contrast to the kind of race thinking that's repeated in, um, in both White and Moody, because he looks at how, you know, different uh, actors – and it's really, it's really meticulous, right? He, he interviewed a number of people. He did a, a tremendous amount of historical research. And, in, and with each specific issue that he takes up, you see how the politics shifts, right? And, and what it reminds us is that the basis of political life, it's not identity. It's not racial identity. It's actually interest. And what people want in specific contexts and specific fights. And so I'll give you one quick example. Um, and that's when he talks about the attempts to decriminalize, uh, legalize marijuana uh, in, in the district in the 1970s, which would seem like by today's standards a progressive thing to do, right? He also looks at the efforts to ban the handgun in Washington, D.C., which, again, is a, by today's standards, most urban dwellers would say that's, what, that's a progressive thing to do. Both of those things are defeated in D.C., during the, the, uh, during the 70s, and it's defeated because of black opposition to it, right? So there's some blacks who support uh, marijuana legalization. There are others who feel that it's, this is a gateway drug. They actually brought in, uh, I think at one point, uh, Jackie Robinson, you know, the, the baseball player, to talk about 
uh, how marijuana was a gateway drug because his son had, had gone from using marijuana to using harder drugs. And many people were swayed by that. So ultimately, they, they don't, they criminalize it. They don't, they don't legalize marijuana. And that has unintended consequences for the high numbers of people who would be incarcerated during the 80s and 90s onwards um, in, that, in the district, right? The other example he uses, that of trying to ban the handgun, the, the reason why some blacks were opposed to it is really fascinating, right? It's, it's, on the one hand, you've got people who are thinking, well, you know, we don't need handguns because they're the source of a lot of violence against black victims. On the other side, you've got people like Douglas Moore, who is a um, black nationalist. He had also been a classmate of Martin Luther King in Divinity School. And uh, he had also been a part of the North Carolina sit-in movement. Douglas Moore basically says, you know what, um, black people don't need to give up guns, right? Because they need to have guns and be ready for armed struggle if it, if it happens. They need to be able to protect themselves. And his argument is pers- persuasive, right? So you get opposition to things that, you know, um, so they oppose the handgun ban. That has, you know, incredibly dramatic and dangerous effects for a place like D.C. When I moved there uh, in, the, in the early 1990s, I mean, it was still had the, it still had the reputation of being a murder capital, right? So I think, again, you know, going back to the initial question, this is really the where I think, you know, we can really develop an understanding of black politics that's sophisticated if we pay attention to specific issues, where people stand in real fights. Because in most cases, you find um, black people on both sides of the issue. And that's true now if we talk about charter schools, you know, charter school expansion, in cities, there's blacks on both sides. If you talk about, um, you know, public housing demolition, you know, beginning in, in the, uh, the 1990s with Clinton and Hope Six, you find black people on both sides. So for me, it's difficult to, to do the thing that Maya White does in her article or Moody does when they talk about, you know, her languages of the, you know, we, we have a certain position, we as black people, his language is this respect for black self-organization. Neither one of those notions holds up whenever we talk about black life in a concrete context, right? And we saw that even in this election here in this city, uh, last example I'll use, where um, this in the election, I mean, black people were choosing different, different candidates for different reasons. So there was no unified um, black perspective. There was no unified black choice. And even though uh, Lori Lightfoot, you know, ultimately was elected uh, and some prominent black people supported her, I would argue that some of the things she's already suggested she's going to do will be clearly at odds with um, the kinds of black constituencies who people might assume she'll help based on her identity. So we really have to get away from that kind of thinking and really focus in on where people stand, what their politics are, what kinds of choices they're going to make when they're in office. I think that's the only way we can talk about this is to focus on interest. Well, why is black political life? Why is black political opinion? Why is it so monolithic? The only other group that I can think that we do this with is Latinx uh, voters. That The Democratic Party is saying, well, they're all going to vote for us because apparently they believe that they are all have a monolithic thinking and have uh, no diversity within their opinion. 
So why is it that we have this idea that uh, that there's this monolithic political opinion and that that everybody shares it, that Barack Obama shares the same opinion with you, that uh, Lori Lightfoot shares the same opinion with Tony Preckwinkle? Why do we have that opinion? Well, I mean, I think it's a function of racism, right? I mean, that's that's one of the things that racism does. It denies the individual individuality, right? It assumes that you share all of the same traits as the group. Where so, if it's a scientific racist, they'll assume that you know blacks uh, are are inferior genetically, and you know if you're if you're Hitler, uh, you assume that you know blacks can't compete at the same level, don't have the same capacity for intelligence. So that's, I mean, that's the function of racism, whether the scientific version or even the culturalist version, is the assumption that the group is, is somehow fundamentally the same and dissimilar from everyone else. The other thing I would say, this might be even more, more important, and to try to historicize this, um, you know, for a long time, right, from, from the end of, of federal reconstruction, in 1877, uh, and the, the birth of Jim Crow segregation at the end of the 19th century, all the way up until the 1950s, you know, you have a, uh, many black people in the country, the, you know, the majority of black people in the South who cannot participate in, in a basic way. They cannot participate as citizens fully. And so the, the result of that disenfranchisement is that the spokesperson is empowered, right? The broker who is able to speak on behalf of the group is empowered. So Booker T. Washington and all his minions, right? And even more benign figures like, uh, or more progressive figures like uh, W.B. Du Bois and others, because they're educated, because they have a certain stature, because they have organizational power, they're able to speak on behalf of the broader population and act as brokers. And I think that's what sets in motion uh, a lot of this thinking in the American population, right? The, you know, even now that, that somehow, um, you know, the, the leader uh, speaks for everybody. The leader can, can kind of um, present the, speak the voice of um, the broader population. But that was, that was not even true during the Jim Crow period, right? It, even though, even though it, it's where that, that set of dynamics uh, takes root or where its origins lie, it's not exactly um, true during that period that all black people agreed with, with, uh, with Booker T. Washington, right? He had all sorts of critics and critics who he tried to silence. Um, du Bois had his critics, right? And so there's the, there's the power of their status, the organizational power that they had, which promotes that view, right? That they're, they're speaking on behalf of the voiceless. Um, but at the same time, when we look closer, we see that there's all sorts of roiling conflicts and, and fights uh, within black life, even during Jim Crow segregation. So I think that's where it comes from. And it survives now, um, you know, uh, because I think, again, the investigation is not there. There's, there's not enough uh, time being spent getting a sense of, of what, uh, what people actually think. And like I said, paying attention to fights uh, real fights, real political fights, and where people stand within those fights. Um, the last thing I'll say about that, I mean, I think, I think social media uh, has, has taken us back, you know, in a bad way. I think we, you know, it allows certain kinds of, of um, 
flat historical thinking to flourish, ahistorical thinking. It allows us to, um, you know, to make claims without evidence, right? And so I think it belongs to, you know, some of the things that I'm criticizing here belong to the same general problem, you know, general uh, malaise as, you know, the other kinds of conspiracy theories, flat earthers and all sorts of other things that flourish now. Because on the one hand, people distrust experts, right? You know, so that's a bigger problem in our society. But I think a lot of folks have been set, set uh, afloat, you know, and, and don't really have um, some of the things that were in place historically that might have allowed for more disciplined kinds of thinking, right? So we've seen, you know, the decline of, of uh, trade unions, right, which provided one space for thinking about politics. We've seen uh, the public sector just ravaged, you know, or, you know, uh, gutted uh, in one year after another. And so the kind of spaces that might have nourished more critical thinking, right, whether they're universities, public schools, whatever else, these things are now, you know, in decline, you know, and, and we have to fight just to save the, the bare things that, that still remain. And I think that that's a problem. And without, without celebrating the old media, I mean, the one thing we can say about, you know, the old corporate media, the old television, you know, uh, stations, everybody kind of watched some of the same things. You know, so we got news from, what, three sources, ABC, NBC, CBS, and maybe PBS. Um, that's no more. My kids don't watch the news like that. They don't, they don't pay attention to the same exact story. They don't sit together with other people and kind of comment on the news as they're watching it. They, they pay attention to whatever's streaming through their social media feeds. Um, and even that, you know, a lot of times they're reading headlines. They're not necessarily engaging. And, and they, they may get some of what they need at school because there's the structure. But I think there are many people in the society who are not um, presented with the kind of space they, they need, they require to, uh, to really develop, you know, and sharpen positions and think critically about about political life and that's not an elitist point i think that's true uh across the board it's even true for people who are in college and people who are nominally educated cedric uh we are speaking with african-american studies and political science scholar cedric johnson who wrote the article what black life actually looks like that appeared in jacobin but was originally published at New Politics, and you can find that website at newpol.org. That's N-E-W-P-O-L.org. You were just discussing why why don't we do a deeper investigation? So why why don't we do a more full? Why doesn't the left do a more full class analysis? Why do they seem to be avoiding critiquing? capitalism because we have had a lot of people on the show who have discussed how, for instance, white supremacy and white privilege are ways in which you can avoid uh, talking about the shortcomings of capitalism and how it's affecting your life. You can therefore, you don't have to scapegoat capitalism, you can scapegoat somebody else instead of capitalism. But why wouldn't people on the left, who are people who are supposed to have an understanding of a full class analysis, why would they avoid critiquing capitalism yeah i mean i think people are trying to move in that direction i think um you know we we're still we're still reeling from you know the, the uh the cold war in a way i mean i think you know certainly anti-globalization struggles at the end of the 1990s and um 
you know, the response to the Hurricane Katrina disaster and, and uh, protest against the war on terror, uh, Occupy, Black Lives Matter, the Sanders campaign, all these things have, have had the, the cumulative effect of, I think, pushing, uh, and as well as just the, the plain worsening conditions of people, right, has had, has had the effect of softening the ground for that kind of class analysis, right? It's, it's created the space for us to have that, that uh, again, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it. I mean, I can feel it when I'm teaching, teaching classes and how students respond to, you know, the uh, different, different criticisms of capitalism we're able to bring in class. So I can see it with students. People are open to it now in ways that they were not when I was a student. You know, if you, if you talked about being a socialist, late 80s, early 90s, I mean, you're, you're, nobody's going to listen to you, right? You, you couldn't even, you certainly couldn't run for public office uh, nationwide and, and have a have a shot. So I think people are opening up to it. Part of the problem, um, I would say, as far as like white privilege and, uh, you know, the white supremacy, the resurgence of those, those concepts, you know, that has its roots, you know, the, the white privilege notion in particular has its roots in the new left, and I think it was well-meaning, you know, as far as its origins. I think that what, um, you know, people like uh, Noel Ignatiev and others, you know, during the, the uh, late 60s and early 70s, what those guys were trying to do, a lot of them had trade union backgrounds, right? They came out of, uh, they came out of um, you know, any war struggles, any Vietnam war struggles. They were committed activists. And one of the things they ran into was on the one hand, you've got, you know, mass demonstrations by black people, you know, radical organizations that are cropping up like the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense and um, the uh, League of Revolutionary Black Workers in Detroit and other groups. And you've got that on one side. And on the other side, you've got uh, whites who are being incorporated into the consumer middle class, they're enjoying an enviable level of, of uh, standard of living that many um, people in, in the world cannot approximate. And they're being lavished with all sorts of consumer goods. Um, they're being entertained to death with all kinds of new media. And I think, you know, those activists, right, people like Ted Allen and others, those folks are looking at this and wondering, how do we, address this, right? And, and they use the phrase white privilege to get at what they're witnessing. Now, what I would say today, kind of in, in, with hindsight, is that there are other people who would be incorporated into that consumer middle class. And if we were to talk to Japanese Americans in California or Mexican Americans in the Southwest, especially those who are well-established, uh, or even blacks in places like Pontchartrain Park in New Orleans, which was built in the 1960s, or uh, Chatham, or Pill Hill, they would have some of the same attitudes about life and about politics uh, and the same commitments to capitalism, right? And the same maybe, maybe dismissive attitudes towards the Black Panthers and the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. So those new left activists like Ignatius use that concept to get at the problem that they're witnessing and it's, it, it, it makes a return, right, you know, a bit later. Um, and it's taken up now with all this, you know, various whiteness studies, um, you know, with, with David Rodiger in, in the late 80s, early 90s, kind of resurrecting the, the notions. 
But, I mean, I think it's not helpful now. It's not helpful for talking about white people because many white people have seen their, their wealth hollowed out. Uh, many more never were a part of that consumer middle class. Others may, may have enjoyed it for a little while. But if you drive through, you know, any of these old industrial towns around here, I mean, the people are on their heels. And they have been for some time. And some places never really um, developed in the ways that, you know, we might imagine. So I think it's a concept that it does come out of a set of class contradictions, you know, that were born out of the post-war period. But it doesn't keep pace with what's happening now. And it also leads, again, to the same kind of dangerous overgeneralizations about whites that we, we, we hear about blacks, you know, with the, the Black Lives Matter and New Jim Crow types of, of claims. So I think in both cases, right, you know, whether it's whiteness, white privilege, or um, Black Lives Matter, New Jim Crow, they both do damage to it. They don't take us in the direction of a real class analysis of the kind that we can use. Because if we, if we start with a, with a view of, of class, and by that, I don't just mean focusing on how much money people make, but by focusing on class as a set of social relations, right? The relations of, of production and thinking about um, capitalist class power, right? And the demands that the capitalist class places on most of us in the society and on the environment and on the resources that we have. If we think about it in those terms, it opens up different possibilities. And so we can explain the deteriorating conditions of Black people, even middle-class blacks, that is often, oftentimes summarized in terms of black wealth. You know, this is the big uh, concern of a lot of academic, you know, technocrat types. Um, we can explain that through a class analysis because what we what we witnessed in that regard, much much of black middle-class status came out of public employment, and as the state has been, you know, uh, hollowed out as a result of neoliberalization, it's been gutted. Who's going to suffer the most? Blacks who work for the post, postal service, blacks who had public sector jobs have seen their pensions raided along with everybody else. Blacks who are public school teachers have felt the brunt of changes in different districts. And so it's easy to see how, you know, how the conditions of black people is actually connected to, the resurgent power of the capitalist class. It's not, it's not separate from that. It's deeply connected to it. The same thing if we're talking about working class blacks uh, in cities or um, poor blacks in rural and small towns I mean, and, and, and poor whites in those same places. Right? Their conditions have worsened uh, given the choices that the capitalist class has made, whether that's to, to hollow out the state Right. Or on the other side to, to, you know, within their own firms to relocate production to other places, other parts of the globe or to, to um, implement, you know, labor saving technologies that rob people of the, the means to sustain themselves. I mean, I was I was actually in a um, convenience store on my campus the other day and they're trying to implement, you know, self checkouts. Right. And so we see, you know, across the board, even, you know, the little service industry job that people might try to work to make ends meet, even those are under siege. Right. Fast food companies now beginning to move in the direction of of uh, almost full automation, both touchscreens for orders, but also 
automated uh, technologies as far as using robots in the back for like McDonald's. So, you know, I'm not trying to, to argue that the, you know, the robots will take our jobs. I think people overdo that, but we do see where, where it is profitable, the adoption of technologies that reduce the need for living labor and produce hardships for working class blacks, but also for working class whites, um, Latinos and other people. So I think there's a way we can talk about all of these things, you know, if we bring a, a, a critique of capital to bear. And I'm not so sure. I mean, I think, there, I think there are many people on the left who are warming up to it. And some people want this analysis, right? They want to move in that direction. For me, you know, I, you know like I said, I, I think um, Marshall Berman said it best, right? You know, uh, you know, Marxism is you have to be a grown-up to appreciate it, right? It takes nuance and, and complexity. If you can deal with that, then it might be the right analysis for you. And I, I, for me, for my money, it actually, you know, it, it does the most for helping me to understand why the, the society is as it is and how we're all connected, right? How our, com- our predicament is actually common for the most part. There may be specific uh, differences, idiosyncratic differences, different situated experiences that we've been talking about here. But overall, for me, the problem is cap- the capitalist class power. Cedric, right. I have one last question for you, Cedric. We have been speaking with sure. African-American studies and political science scholar Cedric Johnson, who wrote the article, What Black Life Actually Looks Like. It appeared in Jacobin, but was originally published at New Politics. Cedric is Associate Professor of African-American Studies and Political Science at my alma mater, the University of Illinois, Chicago. And he edited the 2011 collection, The Neoliberal Deluge. Uh, you can find out more about uh, Cedric by going to our website. We have all sorts of links to his writing. One last question for you, Cedric. And our final question for all of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer, <clears throat> or our audience is going to hate your response. And I know that this is probably a question that you were prepared to answer, because I'm sure it's the question that you get asked all the time. Why does a focus on class not lead to a dismissal of race, backburnering of it, sidetracking it. Aren't discussions over race and class a zero-sum game? And the more you blame one, the more you dismiss the other. Right. Yeah, I mean, I've gotten baited in the past into um, the race-class, uh, you know, debate as such. Um, and and I, I, um, I guess I'll say... I don't think it's one or the other. I, I really think that class analysis can help us to understand, first of all, where race comes from as a notion, right? Where, where does it come from and why does it become so powerful uh, in the society? And why it retains a certain power, right? I mean, we can see this now, you know, in the, uh, the machinations of the Democratic Party as they try to figure out who's going to run for, uh, for president for the party. Um, who's going to be the presidential candidate. It's interesting how quickly they, they embraced reparations, right? You know, all of the candidates down the line have not only embraced it, but also have begun to, to, um, you know, workshop their own ideas, oftentimes with, you know, technocrats whispering in their ears. Why is it easier for them to embrace that and not embrace, you know, strong collective bargaining rights? Why is it easier for them to embrace a, a, a national conversation about reparations and not national health care, right? Or decommodification of, of housing, you know, decommodification of 
uh, higher education, right? There's all sorts of things they could do, which immediately would have vast, you know, impact on improving the lives of millions of Americans. But it's the kind of easy win that they want, right? To sort of talk about race um, in a high abstract manner or to confine the problem to history rather than deal with the inequality in our own midst and their culpability in producing those inequalities, right? So I don't want to hear Cory Booker or anybody else, you know, talking about um, reparations when, you know, he's pursued some of the same policies, you know, as, as people in other cities, people like Rahm Emanuel and others that are to the detriment of black teachers, that are to the detriment of working class black students. And so, you know, there's a, there's a problem here with how race is taken up. I mean, I think race can actually be a class politics nowadays. The focus on race and race exclusively can be a, a form of class politics when it's taken up by people like Booker and others, right? Um, so that's a concern for me. So I don't think it's an either or, right? It's not an either or. For me, you know, uh, the critique of capital is foremost, but I, I, I think it actually helps us. It clarifies um, the meanings of race, the power of race, uh, and how it's been used historically. It's power historically both to, as a justification for slavery, which is kind of its, its most, um, as far as I'm concerned, where, where it really becomes uh, cemented in this society, and um, how it's used now in a way that's, that's equally pernicious. But, you know, if, you, if you're so committed to it, you won't be able to see the class maneuvers, right, and the ways in which people like uh, Cory Booker or uh, Kamala Harris or even, even, you know, Barack Obama, you know, let's be clear about it, right? This guy was able to uh, master, on the one hand, the pursuit of a new democratic politics, which is a deep commitment to neoliberalization, right, sort of hollowing out the state, moving in the direction of a very much pro-market politics. Even his health care plan was, was pro-market, right? It didn't disrupt the insurance industry. It was a boom for some insurance uh, companies. So he was able to, to, on the one hand, pursue that, that neoliberal market-oriented politics, and on the flip side, engage in you know, really... Uh, you know, unforgivable moralizing of working class black people whenever he was put in front of them. And so when he came to Chicago after the death of uh, Hadia Pendleton, what did he engage in? Did he talk about, um, you know, deep commitments to addressing black unemployment? No, he engaged in the same kind of, um, you know, victim blaming and moralizing of the poor as responsible for their own plight. Right. What he said was that there needed to be more fathers, right? There needed to be more, um, you know, people taking responsibility for themselves, not any kind of structural you know, response or any state intervention that might have helped. He did the same thing after the Freddie Gray uh, riots in Baltimore. And so, again, I just think, you know, it's not an either or race or class. I think class analysis actually helps us to understand the ways race is deployed. And um, and actually helps us to see through sometimes the ways that a focus on race can be a class politics. 
So that that would be my my perspective on it. That's a fascinating answer, Cedric. I really, really appreciate the conversation that we've been having today. Your responses have been fantastic, and you can bet that I'm going to annoy the hell out of you for the rest of your life to get you back <laughs> on our show. So I really, really appreciate you being hey, on the thank show. Thank you so much. All right, I'll talk to you soon. I, I promise. It. All right, take care. Okay. That's African-American studies and political science scholar Cedric Johnson, who wrote the article, What Black Life Actually Looks Like, which you can find at Jacobin, but also at New Politics, live from the culture where any unconventional and imaginative alternative to being to bring about truly transformative social change away from greed, speed, violence, and fossil fuels is dismissed as impractical and utopian. This is Hell. Coming up during the Moment of Truth, Jeff looks at the big box of whiteness. We usually have This is Hell office hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago, downstairs from these studios. Immediately following our podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell that happened on Wednesday night, like tonight. But this week we are moving office hours, our meet and greet that's more of a think and drink with our listeners to after our Thursday night podcast tomorrow. If you are listening on WNUR, this is all past now. So if you are listening to the live streaming Patreon podcast, join us tomorrow, Thursday, for Office Hours. If you are listening to the premiere of our live recording of this week's show on WNUR and it's Saturday morning, this is Hell Office Hours. Return next week to its regularly scheduled time, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. But for those of you who are listening to the live Patreon podcast, join us tomorrow, Thursday, beginning at 9 p.m., immediately after our second back-to-back two-hour live Patreon podcast. If you can't normally make it on Wednesday nights because it's a school or work night or because it's too early in the evening, join us for a later edition of Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon starting tomorrow night, Thursday at 9 p.m., immediately following our live streaming Patreon podcast. Not only do we dedicate a party every year to showing our uh, appreciation to you, our listeners, but we do it every week here on This Is Hell during office hours. This week's question from Hell is, what will the last burger be made of? And no saying, rich people, we already know you want to eat them. What will the last burger be made of? All replies read on air. Later on this week's show, if you're listening on WNUR on Saturday morning or on tomorrow's live streaming podcast for Patreon subscribers, and the winner will be getting a book we're featuring on that stream tomorrow, a book by uh, the book by Joshua Specht, which is Red Meat Republic, a hoof-to-table history of how beef changed America. Again, the question from Mel is, what will the last burger be made of? Leave your response on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or direct message it to us on Twitter at thisishellradio. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry and Leo O'Connell. This is Hell, your home for futilitarian content. Alex, I know you have Hefe on the line. The big box of whiteness. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. I envy those who can unironically praise and express love for themselves in our multicultural postmodern USA. Who are these people? They're the oppressed. Just as they have to work twice as hard to succeed in this biased society, they need to be twice as proud as unoppressed people in order to achieve the same level of self-esteem. Who's unoppressed? 
a straight white man. White women can at least be proud of being women, at least until someone points out how many of them voted for dump and the other historically awful crap they've done. I'm lucky because in addition to being white, I'm also a Jew. It's okay to be proud of being a Jew as long as you're suitably ashamed of the Israeli expulsion of Muslim Palestinians prior to 1948 independence and the subsequent abuses of the occupation. The Jews who deny any wrongdoing in this regard, well, I'm ashamed of them and they're ashamed of me. They call me a self-hating Jew. Have you ever really gotten to know a Jew? If you have, I'm sure you'll agree that the moniker self-hating Jew is redundant. So white Jews are a special case of white people. Then again, isn't every white person, you can be really proudly Irish because you saved civilization and survived the famine. You can be proudly Russian because of Tolstoy, etc., and that you survived any number of things. You can be proudly German because of Goethe. But I suggest you counterweigh that pride with some healthy shame because of you know what. Really, it's the wasps who need to check their pride, at least here in the USA, but also around the world. They own like half the world at one point, and despite extending their pinkies while drinking tea, they weren't the kindest of overlords. But hey, the overlord business isn't about kindness. The Chinese in Tibet, Uyghurland, Indochina, etc., have earned a lot of shame. But the British got them all hooked on opium, so it's even, I guess. The Japan, the Japanese in China, Thailand, etc., were brutal oppressors, but they did invent sushi, origami, sake, and they got Hiroshima and Nagasaki by the wasps and their minions. Wasps carry the whiteness elitism for the rest of the white mongrels. Whiteness is what allows the rest of us white people to pass as possible members of the elite group of oppressors. We look like we could possibly be related to some wealthy authority figure, like John Jacob Astor or Colonel Sanders. That's usually enough to keep a cop from shooting us during a routine traffic stop. On the other end of the oppression spectrum are the black Africans, as opposed to the white, Arab, and Berber Africans. When those afraid to say black in the USA say African-American, they mean black African-American, not those others who might also consider themselves both African and American. When the African diaspora is referred to, it usually means black Africans who are dispersed all over the world, mainly due to being shipped around as slave labor. A black African nation has never dropped a nuclear weapon. Black Africans have never oppressed anyone but each other, although they have been known to oppress homosexuals, albinos, women, and children, so there's some intersectional discrimination there. Africa is the continent most of the black people in the USA hail from ancestrally, and that continent was raped literally and figuratively, robbed of its resources, sovereignty, and cultural potential by the Dutch, Portuguese, Spanish, French, Belgian, German, and English white people, primarily. In the USA, then, the white people, as wasps by association, if not blood and culture, represent the primary despoilers of what we call the global south, and the black people represent its primary victims. And this is reflected today mainly in the status of black people as targets of political and social rhetoric, economic oppression, and abuse from the law. Anyway, that's where the racial hierarchy that's where the racial hierarchy derives from and where it shakes out today. Yes, the class issue is powerfully blended in there. It would be simpler if all white people were heterosexual, wasp, adult, able-bodied men, and all black people were equally poor and incarcerated, but it's not simple. It's complicated. Although the fact that it's 
it's complicated shouldn't distract us from the simple, straightforward, everyday injustices perpetrated against the descendants of slaves by the descendants of the beneficiaries of slavery. There's a particular antagonism by white authority that emerges from that dichotomy, and while it isn't bounded within that dichotomy, there's a peculiarity of the persecution that lies inside those limits, a peculiar institution, if you will. At a certain point in history, black people became associated with the struggle against oppression, probably, and I'm just guessing here, but probably because they were being oppressed and didn't like it. At this point in writing this, I've just seen the new footage from Sandra Bland's phone camera of her being extremely aggressively threatened by the police officer who arrested her just before the Texas police killed her. I mean, it's pretty obvious they killed her for not signaling a lane change. Anyway, so yeah. At a certain point, enough of the consciousness of the world was sickened and infuriated by the way white people were abusing, enslaving, and murdering black people and started rooting for and even helping black people who had already been fighting against white cruelty from the beginning, really, eventually in the eyes of the rest of the world, they, they just couldn't remain closed, those eyes. So now pressure was coming from both outside and inside the evil system. Anyway, a lot of white people still hold a grudge. They liked slavery. They thought it was a good thing for them, and some even pretend they believe it was good for black people. And even after slavery, they didn't want to let go of being cruel to black people, so everyone who was against them being cruel to black people became their enemy. So by the 1960s, black people became associated on the right with hippies and birth control and socialism. So all that got mixed together in the racist mind. They saw liberals in favor of black people, and black people were their enemy, so black people and their desire not to be murdered or imprisoned or generally screwed with became synonymous with indigenous rights and recycling and whatever. That's why they're so offended by football players taking the knee. They know somehow it's anti-racism, so they also assume it must be anti-patriotism, anti-militarism, anti-heterosexuality, and anti-white. The right-wing white people have now hopelessly entangled their racism with anti-multiculturalism, anti-peace, anti-sexual freedom, anti-feminism, anti-unionism, anti-disabilism, and general overall anti-leftism. They're being intersectional. It's a start. Seriously, though, it's, it's kind of convenient for all of us. They are a one-stop shop of hatefulness. Of course, it's always more complicated than that. I mean, there's always someone who has to pipe up with, I'm anti-labor, but I'm also anti-racist. Or, I'm anti-multiculturalism, but I'm also Jewish. Or, I'm anti-abortion and anti-trans, but I'm also black. I get the feeling such people are just being perverse. A bunch of hateful people have done us the favor of wrapping themselves up in a Nazi bow of total hatred, and these devil's advocates are trying to confuse the issue. Let's focus on the straightforward, all-inclusive enemies first. Then we can deal with all those other losers. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Oh, Jeffy, it's always lovely to hear your voice, and it sounds very clear today. Yes. Oh, my God, that Cedric guy was amazing. I know. He was great. Even though he was giving really long answers, I didn't care. It's almost like Chomsky sometimes. You know, you're just like, just just go. Just keep no, talking. They, they were always really entertaining and informative. In fact, I would call him Cedric the informator. <sighs> Jesus Maybe. What the? No? My friend. My <laughs> God. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Jeffy, until next time. Yeah. Stay beautiful. What?
Okay. <laughs> Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. Listen up. If you're an artist or you know an artist, that would be a welcome addition to our annual This Is Hell, This Is Art show during our anniversary and listener appreciation party on Saturday, July 27th at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Email me your or their art, and we'll definitely consider it to be part of the 2019 show. Again, email me your art or someone's art you like to chuck at thisishell.com and they could, could be part of this year's annual This Is Art show that happens during our anniversary party every year. We're already getting some submissions, so you better send yours in now. We're also looking for musicians to perform as well, so if you're an artist or a musician or you want to suggest artists or musicians to take part in our annual anniversary party and listener appreciation party this year at Carrie's on July 27th, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. We've got some even bigger news to share about our anniversary and listener appreciation party, so stay tuned for that. This is not the media. This is hell. Yes, another end of the world is possible. This is hell. In a few moments here on hell, the idea that the United States is in some way exceptional and all of the problems done in its name are mere mistakes, errors, nothing more than historical anomalies erased by our inherent innocence is, if you excuse me for saying so, fake news. And don't blame me for using that term. It's our next guest's fault. We'll figure out why Americans think they're so damn exceptional in a few minutes and so damn innocent when we talk to activist and journalist Danny Haifong, co-author of American Exceptionalism and American Innocence, a people's history of fake news from the Revolutionary War to the War on Terror. Danny wrote the book with Roberto Servant. Danny is a regular contributor at blackagendareport.com where you can find all of his work. And you know Danny's book is good because several-time guest on our show, Black Agenda Reports, Glenn Ford wrote the foreword. After we herald, herald, that's right, I said herald, the fake news of American exceptionalism and American innocence, modernized, industrialized, centralized meat processing of the late 19th century, ushered in agribusiness after indigenous genocide opened up the prairie for the cattle beef complex that is at the heart of what it means to be American. We'll talk meat with historian Joshua Specht, author of Red Meat Republic, a hoof-to-table history of how beef changed America. Joshua teaches American history at Monash University in Australia, Find out more about Joshua at joshuaspect.com. That's Joshua, S-P-E-C-H-T, dot com. Live from land stolen from the natives, this is hell streaming live right now exclusively for the people who are helping us build our still incomplete studio, our subscribers to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell and recording live to be aired Saturday morning on Chicago Sound Experiment. WNUR 89.3 FM Evanston, where it'll be streaming at thisishell.com as well and podcast in its entirety shortly after our live broadcast also at thisishell.com. You can also hear This Is Hell on the South Side's Lumpen Radio and on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho. If you want your neighbors to hear This Is Hell, email us your favorite local radio station's call letters to chuck at thisishell.com or send them to us via Facebook or Twitter. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio and follow us on Twitter at thisishellradio and on Instagram at thisishell where you can see 
this stupid fort I've built of acoustic panels because we haven't got them hung on the walls yet because we don't have the money. Lots of listeners have been sending us listener feedback at Chuck at this is hell.com about our interview with uh, sustainability scholar Jem Bendel, who now argues sustainability is not possible and that we need to start doing is we need to adapt to climate change as it's happening already. And it's only going to get worse real soon, like in the next 10 to 20 years when Jem believes we will witness societal collapse. One of those emails is from Steve Perry from Journey, not Joe Perry from Aerosmith. At least I assume it's the same Steve Perry. Steve writes, Chuck, on a recent program, you requested information about alternative plans to the new Green Deal. Here's an idea that I would love to get going if I had at least six other people and a skilled web manager to work with. It's our government's job to update our energy infrastructure, but let's not wait for them any longer. Why struggle and fight for their cooperation? Let's form a nonprofit and start a program of our own that offers seed money to businesses to address our infrastructure issues around solar and wind power. A $5 monthly donation from enough people could build a fund quickly enough to get some attention. One million people at $5 a month creates $30 million in six months and $60 million in a year. That's good seed money. No more than 10% of that goes to the cost of operations, and a full account of the money is published quarterly so everyone can see how their money is being used. The accountability around the money will motivate others to contribute. Perhaps the goal is to transform the grid in a city in a population of about 500,000. What city would like a little notoriety? We demonstrate how it can be done in one city, and then how shamed would our government be? Maybe shamed enough to take some meaningful action of their own. Innovation gets rolling. Private industry sees the new opportunity, and we've created a model city for others to follow and expand on. Each and every one of us is the government, so let's take care of our infrastructure directly. I'm good for $5 a month. How about you? All the best, Stephen. Which sounds great, but if it reproduces capitalism that creates or promotes climate change, then it won't work, apparently. But I like your idea, and to be honest, I really don't know how in capitalism we can fight climate change without capitalism. This stuff drives me up to my wit's end, which according to Jem Bendel, will be in about 10 or 20 years. Daniel also was concerned about the Jem Bendel interview. And Daniel writes, hey, Chuck, love the show. I actually grew up in Evanston, Illinois, where WNUR is, but apparently had to move to Eureka, California and download Stitcher to discover you. Go figure. Anyway, in light of your recent excellent interview with Jem Bendel, I thought you might be interested in Jeremy Lentz, L-E-N-T, Patterns of Meaning blog at PatternsofMeaning.com. He's engaged in a dialogue with Jem Bendel, of which you should probably be aware. Would be excellent if you could have him on the show to respond to Bendel, or even better if you could somehow get them both on together for an actual discussion. Just a thought. Peace. Daniel. I cannot thank Daniel enough because that Jem Bendel interview really did a number on me and many of our listeners who found it far, far too depressing. It's just so damned hard to find hope in hopelessness, even though Jem says you can. So we will definitely be following up on the Patterns of Meaning blog author. Again, his name is Jeremy Lent. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz producing this week's show, Alex, Jerry, and Leo O'Connell. We'll be getting back into listener feedback in a little bit after our first guest. 
This week's question from Hell exclusively for Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. If you're listening on Saturday on WNUR, sorry, this week's question from Hell was already posted and answered during our live stream. To hear that live stream and to make sure you don't ever miss This Is Hell Live, subscribe at patreon.com slash this is hell. This week's question from Elle is, what will the last burger be made of? And no saying, rich people, we already know you want to eat them. What will the last burger be made of? And no saying, rich people, we already know you want to eat them. All replies read during the next hour of this week's Hell. This week's winner gets a book we are featuring on tonight's live stream for Patreon patrons at patreon.com slash thisishell and later on this weekend's show on WNUR. Joshua Specht's. Red Meat Republic, a hoof-to-table history of how beef changed America. Again, the question from Al is, what will the last burger be made of? And no saying, rich people, we already know you want to eat them. Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and we will be reading all of them after our final guest this week. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, American exceptionalism and innocence are fake news. And a lot of America's problems today and historically can be traced back to beef. We'll continue with listener feedback. We'll read your answers to this week's question from hell. We've got more news about our upcoming anniversary and listener appreciation party happening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon on Saturday, July 27th. So put that in your calendar. Saturday, July 27th, our annual anniversary party. That's why we call it an anniversary party, because it's annual. And uh, listener appreciation party at Saturday, July 27th at Carrie's Lounge all day immediately following what hopefully will be our first live radio broadcast from the studio. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host Chuck Mertz producing this week's This Is Hell. Again, Alex Jerry and Leo O'Connell. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. The United States is an exceptional nation, better in every way to every nation before and since. America is exceptional because America is innocent, never doing anything wrong. And if the U.S. did anything wrong, it was probably a mistake, an anomaly, and has nothing to do with anything. Thankfully, our next guest disproves all of that, here to tell us why American exceptionalism and innocence is fake news. His words, not mine. Activist and journalist Danny Haifong is co-author of American Exceptionalism and American Innocence, A People's History of Fake News from the Revolutionary War to the War on Terror. Danny wrote the book with Roberto Servant, and you can find all of Danny's writing, as he is a regular contributor, at Black Agenda Report, at Black Agenda Report. Dot com. Welcome to This Is Hell, Danny. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for being on the show. And if Glenn Ford writes the foreword to your book, then it's got to be good, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Jamal wrote the foreword, actually, Jamal Baraka, but Glenn Ford was on the afterwards. So definitely having two heavy hitters like that helps a lot. You write fake news existed long before Donald Trump. In fact, Donald Trump didn't even come up with the term. According to the BBC, it was Hillary Clinton who first lamented over the real-world consequences of fake news or false information spread on the Internet. Fake news has become the primary explanation as to why Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 election. The notion that devious hackers associated with Russia used fake news to help Trump win the election has deflected attention from the real shortcomings of the Clinton campaign in particular and the two-party political system in general. Before we move on from that point, I know all the short, how it pointed out the shortcomings or how it distracts people from the real shortcomings of the Clinton campaign in particular, but 
How do you see it showing the shortcomings of our two-party political system in general? I think the whole narrative of fake news that the two-party political duopoly has utilized, and this has been led by the Democratic Party, uh, has been so damaging to the extent uh, of completely ignoring the material realities of their own voting base. I mean, this is exactly what led to the loss of Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016. And it seems like given where Russiagate went with the Mueller report, uh, basically uh, coming up with a big nothing burger of a result around the whole notion of Russian collusion into the 2016 election, it seems like Russiagate has just handed a big gift to Donald Trump because of the fact that the Democratic Party has spent three plus years and it seems like it will be even longer harping on the notion that, in fact, their own base, their own voters, the voters that they desperately need because of the electoral uh, makeup of the United States, where black voters are so important to the Democratic Party, where working class voters in uh, many key states are so key to their uh, electoral future in the presidential elections, uh, they have completely ignored their not only the problems that they face, the fact that four out of five uh, people in the United States live paycheck to paycheck, the fact that um, you know black Americans are terrorized by the mass incarceration regime at, at record rates, but they even continue to promote candidates like Joe Biden, who will just continue this trend. And, and people like Nancy Pelosi, who's the head of the House at the moment, um, we have this situation where this whole narrative of fake news has been turned on its head. It's been created, it's been made into a weapon supposedly against Donald Trump, but really it's a, it's a weapon against the left, anyone left of the corporate democratic party and their Republican allies, which has become a real phenomenon, especially since the uh, Trump election, where it seems like the bipartisan consensus on all of the issues that, most Democratic Party voters, let alone people who don't even participate in the process, find absolutely heinous, whether that's endless war or endless austerity, the fact that there's, there's barely a Democrat to be found in Washington other than the uh, fringe few who will say things like Medicare for all or that health care is a human right. These are things that people really care about. And um, I think this is what makes it so heinous. This is fake news narrative. We're being told that Trump is the only one who lies and that Trump and Russia have colluded to spread lies when in fact the liars and, and not even, um, not even to mention that that whole narrative is, is essentially a lie, but the liars are really, um, uh, can be easily seen in the mirror, which is uh, the Democrats and, and the two-party duopoly as a whole. Hillary was talking about purposely fraudulent news, and Trump was talking about news that depicts him poorly, negatively in any way, and then that must be fake news. Are they different fake news depictions? I think you just touched on that, because the thing I was wondering is, has it become much more difficult to criticize the media with Trump calling any news that depict, depicts him as fake 
uh, because I've been even told I should be careful in critiquing the media as it could come off as supporting Trump. So is there a difference between the Hillary fake news, the Trump fake news, and do you think that has an impact on the ability to actually do effective media criticism? Well, I think the issue is really deep because uh, when Trump supposedly attacked uh, fake news in the corporate media, he was really attacking his friends because the corporate media essentially gave him billions of dollars worth of uh, campaign coverage and continue to do so, actually, have continued to do so over the last uh, three and a half years up until his last year in office uh, before the 2020 election. Uh, they they can't get over him. They are obsessed with everything that he essentially does or supposedly does. Or, um, but in but in effect, what Trump was doing was creating a false uh, dichotomy between him in the media, false opposition. Because what the corporate media has been opposing uh, about Trump has been essentially a lie in and of itself. So. Um, because Russiagate was such a farce, because Russiagate was such a scapegoat tactic, it was a strategy to not only enhance uh, the warfare state's uh, um, efforts to undermine Russia, but it was also a, an excuse to use this notion that uh, Russian hackers were everywhere. It was really an excuse to attack independent political thought and independent journalism, which has happened all over the Internet um, Silicon Valley and the states have really, uh, really aligned themselves in order to ensure that places like Black Agenda Report and, and other uh, independent outlets are suppressed in the online sphere. So really, there's so much to this issue of fake news as it's being talked about in the mainstream right now. And I think it's what is really critical is to realize that um, you know, the contradiction between Trump and the corporate media is, a, is an inter-ruling class conflict. It's an internal conflict between uh, two uh, sections of the oligarchy and Trump being the most recent and most emergent form of oligarchy in the United States, uh, a, an accident, so to speak. And so the corporate media was very angry that that accident occurred because it really undermined the legitimacy of the U.S. electoral system. It undermined the legitimacy of U.S. wars around the world. It undermined the legitimacy of U.S. exceptionalism, which is what we talk about in the book. And so uh, they had to attack him, but in their own way, in a way that doesn't really have to do with the problems of the people, because whenever he lobs missiles or authorizes lobbing missiles at Syria, or with, uh, the ongoing coup in Venezuela right now, the corporate media is, to is on its side because they're locked in step with Wall Street and the Pentagon. Um, but when it comes to things like uh, Trump's politics on free trade deals or Trump's politics on uh, regime change, when he just utters those things rhetorically, that's where the issue really arises with the corporate media. And I think they know uh, better than, than anyone. And, and I think we're starting to realize that the reason why the corporate media is so obsessed with Trump is because it's good for ratings. It's, there, there's a base of people that the corporate media are targeting and marketing toward um, it, that really do like Trump as a television character, as a personality. They like to watch the 
so-called self-destruction of the celebrity president. And so all of these things are at play as, as we kind of wrestle on and trudge on in this era of, of so-called fake news. You write that the only news ever reported by various channels of U.S. empire is the news of American exceptionalism and American innocence, and it's all fake. So what happens when all our news is fake, or at least fake as it is guided by a narrative of American exceptionalism and innocence? What happens when the news is fake because it's filled with the myth of American exceptionalism and the myth of American innocence? Well, we're not only grossly misinformed, but our very being, our condition, the uh, the way that we understand our conditions and the material conditions before us and the way that we respond to them are heavily influenced. I think I think the corporate media um, and the two-party uh, corporate duopoly, uh, their promotion of American exceptionalism, the myth that the United States is a force for good in the world, their promotion of American innocence, the idea that even when the United States does wrong, it in fact is just an aberration, um, the, inte- the intentions of the United States was correct, these narratives really inculcate in the population at large, but mostly white America, they inculcate this notion of superiority, this idea that um, the United States is a superior society, regardless of whatever it does. And so when people, especially working people, stand up to the power structure, stand up to the class structure in the United States, they tend to leave out critical aspects of that structure because they're off limits. Uh, There's no knowledge of what's actually occurring. And the only narratives that we have are narratives that say that the United States is a force for good. And that even when, and that we just need to reform away the issues that are affecting people in the United States or that are affecting a certain subsection of people in the United States. What it really does is it places movements, especially into boxes that, um, are then much more easily influenced by Democratic Party politics, by the nonprofit industrial complex, by various forces that can use the vulnerability of the U.S. population in believing whatever the corporate media says, whatever the two-party duopoly says, especially, I'm, I'm, I'm mostly aiming this at liberals, white liberals, Democrats, um, it becomes really easy to ignore certain things, especially let's uh, you know, the, the example of Libya, for example, the anti-war movement was silent on Libya. Um, and that was because the Obama administration defined it as uh, not a war at all. It was it was only a war if U.S. soldiers were to die in it. So by completely rewriting international law, by positing the United States as above international law, the Obama administration was able to destroy the most prosperous and the most progressive African country on that continent at the time. And without a peep from the anti-war movement, except for the, um, you know, minority of those of us who have attempted to remain principled in this, in this difficult period. So, so that is really uh, what we're up against is the fact that not only are we influenced by these ideologies and how we think about things, but really how we behave and how we respond and how we get angry and then how we come to political consciousness. It's a constant process of unlearning um, the fact that, uh, you know, at this time, especially, and this is why we wrote the book. This is the period where, uh, you know, millions of people are coming to realize that, 
this system is in decline, that this system is just completely antagonistic to the interests of the majority of people who are, you know, fast and rapidly go coming into the working class. Um, and that something needs to be done about it. And so our book says that, well, we can't really do much if our solutions are going to be tainted and stained and, and manipulated by this very seductive um, ideological apparatus, American exceptionalism and innocence. How do those who believe in American exceptionalism and innocence square that with the history of slavery? Doesn't slavery prove our guilt and that the U.S. from the beginning was never innocent or exceptional? I mean, uh, the, slavery was a very intentional act. It wasn't just a mistake and error or some sort of aberration. It was a long-term institution with this, within this country that propped up Wall Street for a very long time. So how do those who believe in American exceptionalism and innocence square that with the institution of slavery? Well, there are many ways that that is squared. Uh, some would counter that, in fact, uh, slavery was not inherent to uh, the formation of the United States that it was something that was inherited from the British crown that was uh, ultimately overthrown by the progressive American revolution, so-called progressive American revolution. And then they might say that, in fact, uh, the founding fathers and then the um, early leadership in the United States was uh, heavily uh, interested in uh, eliminating uh, slavery and that that in and of itself uh, shows the progressive character, the, the move toward a more perfect union, as we call it, which is so, so fundamental to understanding or misunderstanding uh, U.S. history. But as we show in the book, uh, these very convenient manipulations of history, uh, the complete uh, retelling of history and revision of history to fit this very comfortable picture of showing slavery not as inherent and not... Um, not rooted in the formation of the United States. It's just a lie. I mean, there are prominent scholars, one of which uh, is Gerald Horn, who shows that the very reason, or at least the principal reason, why the American Revolution was even fought in the first place was because it was the colonialists. It was the so-called founding fathers and the oligarchs behind them, the slave-owning class, the slave-trading class, that was so interested in ensuring that the slave trade would continue when, in fact, it was the British crown that was incurring all sorts of losses in the Caribbean, all sorts of issues and expenses um, that uh, around the uh, system of slavery that was leading the British crown to think about how can we mitigate this? How can we reform the system of the British Empire? in order to create some stability. And one of the, one of the, um, one of the things that was being talked about right before the American revolution was maybe we need to end the slave trade. They didn't say abolish slavery wholesale, but maybe we need to end trade because the trade is the leading to these developments such as, um, uh, the, uh, sweeping rebellions in the Caribbean where uh, Africans were chopping off the heads and overthrowing, um, uh, you know, uh, settler regimes in places like Antigua. Like this was this was the conversation in the colonialists here in the mainland, where 
uh, the colonies were founded upon this ferry system and where there had been a demographic shift um, to create white majorities. This was a new trend that was happening in order to uh, curb rebellion. This, this was a real fear for the colonialists. And so that, this is historically documented and grounded. But because there has been so much manipulation around the history of the United States um, in this way, this, because it's so fundamental and the afterlives of slavery live on to this day. So there has to be this manipulation to even maintain the system of U.S. imperialism and the ideologies that justify it. In order to continue that process, uh, slavery has to be mistold and misremembered. We had the pleasure of interviewing Gerald Horn on our show, and so if anybody wants to hear our interview with him, you can just go to thisishell.com and search on Gerald Horn. That's H-O-R-N-E. I don't know if this came up in your studies, in uh, your research. Is exceptionalism unique to the United States? Is there such thing as Canadian or Russian or Chinese exceptionalism? Doesn't every nation have exceptionalism to some degree or... Is that a confusion with patriotism, patriotism and nationalism? Well, I think that there's something very unique to American exceptionalism, American innocence, and that is the fact. And some would argue with me about this, but I, I, I do think that the United States is unique, in, and some would say this is unexceptional, but is unique in the fact that its settler colonial system was founded upon this enslavement of Africans and the genocide of indigenous peoples, and that this was really the first republic that was founded upon those systems. Uh, it was the first uh, so-called uh, settler society that created a national unity around these the cross-class interests of white supremacy. Um, empires in the past have, have, have uh, developed into racist uh, societies, uh, you know, Great Britain, the empires before them, Spain, all had their own racist histories, um, but they were societies that um, were formed based on mercantilism and the desire to colonize the planet. Um, and so uh, those colonies remain colonies of the British crown. This is the first society in and of itself to gain independence found, uh, based on these uh, founding systems of white supremacy um, and, and capitalism as well. So, you know, there is something exceptional in that, in the sense that, um, you know, uh, the United States has this unique history that makes it one of the most difficult, actually, to challenge, um, because it's so entrenched in the very makeup and fabric of society. Uh, but there's also another difference to be made, I think, too, because a lot of people may read the book and think of nationalism and think of uh, what our book really does is condemn U.S. patriotism and the notion that the U.S. is exceptional because it's an exceptional country based on values uh, and that our flag represents liberty and democracy and that that is uh, what we're critiquing, and it is. However, um, that shouldn't be equated with other forms of nationalism that exist in the world. There's a lot of patriotism, I'm sure, in China. There's a lot of patriotism in Cuba but it's of a different form. It's of a, it's, a, it's of a form of overthrowing the yoke of colonialism and overthrowing the yoke of an oppressor that really breeds that form of nationalism, the experience of being colonized, which um, is not necessarily uh, disconnected from U.S. history, 
but in the sense that the U.S. has had internal colonies, has enslaved Africans, has um, committed genocide and stolen the land of uh, several uh, and numerous uh, indigenous nations, that this uh, form of patriotism is rooted in that blood, blood-soaked history. And so there is something very unique in that. And so, yeah, we need to differentiate, I think, um, different forms of nationalism and exceptionalism based on the class interests behind them. And so uh, we root our analysis in the fact that Western liberalism generally provides the framework of the uh, for American exceptionalism and American innocence, that it was really a, a reform of those ideologies to fit the needs of the particular system here in the United States that, that ultimately was rooted in, in settler colonialism. You and Roberto write about the <clears throat> seeming reflexiveness of American exceptionalism, even saying that when people are being critical of the United States, uh, they, will, they may say something negative and then say, but of course, give the qualifier of, we're still the greatest country in the world. Is American exceptionalism politically correct? That is, do you have to qualify everything with American exceptionalism or you will be seen as insulting, rude, and offending political sensibilities, which is the definition of political correctness? Yeah, I think you could definitely see it in that light. It it really surrounds, I think, I think political correctness is, is definitely a weapon uh, that is used to preserve the interests of a particular class, uh, the ruling class, the capitalist class, and all those who seek uh, its favor. And, and so there's lots of uh, various uh, of groups and sections of the population that really has an interest in preserving American exceptionalism in order to achieve what they think will also be theirs, which is the dominance of the ruling class and, and, and the money that it makes and the profits that derive from it. So there is a lot of this always happening. I, I think that anyone who's been in uh, politics, anyone who has struggled on the streets for whatever uh, issues and whatever uh, political uh, struggle that they're involved in have experienced this where um, as you're trying to win someone over to a struggle or uh, win someone over to a particular political line, uh, there, when you start to talk about certain issues or you, or you frame things in a certain way, especially when you begin to challenge root and branch the system of imperialism, uh, the warfare state, the endless war and austerity that the United States wages domestically and abroad, when you start to make this about fundamental, not flaws, but fundamental interests and the fundamental social relations that ultimately uh, form the core of what the United States is, then that's where, no matter where we are in the political spectrum, uh, we see this, I think, in more subtle forms, even on the radical left, uh, where you start talking about certain issues and certain questions and there's you you get ostracized and silenced. Uh, there's this it's almost there's almost a sectarian character to it, and and a fear. I think there is a latent fear because it's different for uh, it's different depending on who you're talking to, um, but that backlash comes in some form because uh, to challenge U.S. imperialism root and branch to challenge these ideologies that are so seductive and really take on so many different forms. I think some people have had, uh, have had trouble with the book in some ways because 
there's some things that we talk about it, like the international aid, for example, charity and, and the aid structures that the United States dominates around the world, the IMF, um, these kind of financial institutions, there's some who may have trouble understanding it from the framework of American exceptionalism. How does that really match up with it? Um, when, in effect, when you're talking about the U.S. as being even able to help other nations as they are destroying, as it is destroying them, is in itself a fundamental contradiction that screams of exceptionalism. It screams of this notion that the United States is capable of doing this at all. And uh, that's, that's what we're trying to challenge. We're trying to challenge the most difficult questions of this period that really uh, garner strong reactions from all sides of the political spectrum. We're not just talking about the right wing here or uh, conservatives. Uh, we're talking about liberals and we're even talking about the radical left uh, or what calls themselves the left at this moment. We are speaking with activist and journalist Danny Haifong. He is co-author of American Exceptionalism and American Innocence, A People's History of Fake News from the Revolutionary War to the War on Terror. Danny wrote the book with Roberto Servant. Danny is a regular contributor to the Black Agenda Report, and you can find Danny's writing at blackagendareport.com. Some past guests on our show have given Danny's book high praise, including John Pilger, Stephen Kinzer, and Michael Parenti. What explains this American exceptionalism existing alongside the cynicism toward government and positions on the right and left, even in the center, that are anti-government. How is it possible to believe that both the United States is exceptional, but all the people in government suck? <laughs> there are many, uh, I think, explanations for this. Uh, one of which is, um, especially in this period of extreme neoliberalism, where U.S. imperialism has entered a stage economically in terms of its capitalist infrastructure that points to the need to siphon off and privatize and profit from every single aspect of society. Uh, that this need to pillage and to rape and to um, destroy nations around the world, to privatize all public services, that this need is, 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 is critical. It's, it's a form of desperation of an empire that's running out of things to plunder. And, in effect, this need to plunder everything means that it has to plunder itself. It has to plunder the very state from which is, it's a, is supposed to protect it. And so that is a, that is a fundamental contradiction to neoliberal, this neoliberal period, where there is such a consensus among both political parties of so-called small government. But really what that means is uh, there needs to be very little for the poor that services and, um, you know, public sector unions, pensions, so on and so forth have to go. But trillions of dollars can be wasted away into the Pentagon to build bases and bombs and to, you know, build absolutely nothing. Sometimes it just disappears because there are people running away for, away with, away with it. And so, uh, that is okay. That, Form of big government is okay, but as long as it's not talked about. And part of this contradiction, I think, too, is that there is a need right now to, to blame. Uh, it's not good enough to blame the poor anymore. Uh, I think that this has been embedded in the psyche of many people in the United States, and it's been hostily uh, 
conditioned into us through the corporate media and through um, our politicians. However, a lot there it's becoming more and more difficult to do that as more and more people are affected by the the conditions of neoliberalism. As more and more people enter uh, the working class, as more and more people enter the realms of homelessness and precarity, all of this really means that the narrative of blaming the poor also means you're uh, creating and inciting the conditions of rebellion. So then the, the government becomes the target. The politicians become the target in a, in a way it, because in effect, we, it's, it's complicated. We have a situation where the Democratic Party is now the engine of American exceptionalism and part of that being that engine of American exceptionalism is protecting the so-called values and structures of the system of the United States. And that even includes the Electoral College that keeps screwing over the Democratic Party every time uh, there's, a, there's an election, um, there's a close election, right? So um, there are a lot of contradictions to that phenomenon. But I think part of it is that the material conditions on the ground are getting worse for black people who are a fundamental uh, part of the Democratic Party strategy uh, in order to win elections, but also for, for people across the political spectrum. Conditions are just worsening, and we're being told that they're not. And we're also being told that war is great and war is wonderful, and we should continue to wage war. Um, but a lot of people are are angry about that. So there is this level of confusion, I think, among the ruling class. I mean, look at Russiagate. Russiagate attacked the very political system that it was supposedly seeking to preserve by proving that Russia attacked the U.S. elections. But in effect, it was saying, and Glenn Ford talks about this all the time, what Russiagate was really saying was that the U.S. is weak, that the U.S. can't even protect, can't even protect with the largest intelligence uh, and uh, surveillance apparatus ever created in human history with the largest military state. It couldn't even protect its elect- election system from the Russians. This is a contradiction in of itself. So there's a lot of signals to people that the United States is weak. And so you need something to blame. And, you know, Trump has done a very good job of this, blaming the so-called swamp, uh, which he is a part of. But he blames it in order to garner political favor because there's a lot of people who are looking to blame someone other than themselves for their miserable condition. And, and you know, rightfully so in terms of, you know, uh, uh, the state itself. But when the ruling class is doing it, that means there's a crisis on hand. How much is American exceptionalism an obstacle for even activists who are fighting for social transformation to overcome within themselves. How often do you see exceptionalism getting in the way of successful activism? Do should should activists before they even try to attempt social transformation should they first confront American exceptionalism so they can get over that and hopefully get over that within their thinking of trying to apply real activism that causes actual social transformation. All right. I think it's a process, you know, for, for activists, which I, you know, which I'm a part, I had my own process, right? I, I didn't just um, read a book and say, wow, American exceptionalism and American innocence are really impediments uh, to the struggle for social transformation in the United States and around the world. Uh, that, that wasn't how it happened. It happened 
um, from particular experiences that I had that propelled me into activism. And then through being propelled into activism, learning from my environment, learning from the conditions around me, learning from the people that I communicated with and talked to and organized with, that these ideologies were really getting in the way of, uh, of fundamental social transformation. And, and, and so it's, I think it's going to be different for everyone. Uh, but I think we wrote the book as a tool to show that um, and to use to show that there is a need in our activist circles and our organizations to confront this as it occurs, because it's going to come up whether we like it or not, whether it's intentional or not. Um, I, you know, I think that one of the things that we talk about in the book is this whole politics of inclusion, the diversity, the con of diversity, as Glenn Ford calls it, uh, how this has really seeped into the politics of the left, that there's a lot of disorganization and a lot of infighting and a lot of struggle that occurs around these issues um, that can be very harmful to talking about class and talking about war and talking about white supremacy in a, in a structural way, in a way that gets to uh, just who the enemy really is. And we end up with a politics of inclusion that makes it very seductive to want power, to want power within the system. And we see this happening. I think of someone like DeRay McKesson, for example, who was uh, one of the activists of the, or, or he called himself an activist of the Black Lives Matter movement. He was someone who promoted charter schools and who had a very, um, you know, watered down political uh, orientation and, uh, you know, really was seeking a career for himself through activism. And that's what diversity politics really does. It uh, carves out careers and money mostly from the Democratic Party apparatus and nonprofits affiliated um, with their donors. Um, and so we're really pushed um, toward that trend. And, you know, the Obama administration was probably the highest uh, form of, of that, uh, where we saw someone who called himself the first black president, or at least uh, a lot of people were calling him the first black president, even though he's distancing, distancing himself from black people um, as soon as he was in office. So, you know, I think how dangerous that can be uh, when the desire to reform the United States to make it look better, to make it seem more progressive, uh, really does get in the way in, in, in terms of uh, a real political struggle um, against systems of oppression, against the very um, empire that we are living in. And, and we see this uh, with the radical left, we see this with organizations that have a hard time criticizing certain uh, leaders. We saw that during the Obama period. Um, we saw the backlash uh, against Bernie Sanders when he came uh, to criticize Hillary Clinton's Wall Street speeches. Immediately, he was being, his supporters were being all Bernie bros, and they were all just white men. I come to find out that a lot of his supporters were young black Democrats, uh, who were very excited about things like Medicare for all, but we weren't hearing that because in effect uh, we were being told that only white men support Bernie Sanders. And so he was in effect, not progressive. And, you know, for all the criticisms that I lay on Bernie Sanders uh, in terms of being an imperialist pig and someone who supports war um, without really questioning it at the same time, 
when we can't even move the lever because uh, we're being told that Bernie Sanders is a white man and he shouldn't be running. When we, we, when we get into that struggle of just because you're a black person or just because you're a woman or just because you're queer, that that makes you uh, accountable to the people. It's laughable because what we've experienced over the last, especially 30 years is that, Conditions can worsen for the masses. Conditions can worsen for the majority of black people, but there can be plenty of black leaders and there can be plenty of queer leaders and there can be plenty of women in the military industrial complex, but that doesn't make war any softer or any more uh, feminist. It makes it even more destructive and more effective. We have been speaking with activist and journalist Danny Haifong, co-author of American Exceptionalism and American Innocence, A People's History of Fake News from the Revolutionary War to the War on Terror. Danny wrote the book with Roberto Servant. Danny is a regular contributor to the Black Agenda Report, where you can find all of his writing at blackagendareport.com. And Danny's book features an afterword by frequent This Is Hell guest Glenn Ford of the Black Agenda Report. So you know it is good. One last question for you, Danny. And as always, with each and every one of our guests, it's the question from hell. The question you might hate to, uh, we may hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You would like to see the end of American exceptionalism and innocence, a belief in it. I would like to see an end of American exceptionalism and innocence and a belief in it. Would an end of belief in American exceptionalism and American innocence be the end of the United States of America? (laughs) I think it would be the end of the system from which the United States of America rests. Uh, Really, the only way that ideology can be um, stripped away and delegitimized wholesale is when there is a revolutionary upheaval and upsurge on the ground that challenges those ideologies with alternative uh, narratives and with narratives that are backed up by a movement strong enough, a movement comprised of those who have been forsaken by the oppressor and ruling class ideologies like American exceptionalism. Only then can that belief be stripped away. And so Um, We talk about in the book imagining what the world would be like um, without a United States of America. That doesn't mean, as a lot of Zionists like to say about Israel, it doesn't mean wiping the United States off the map. We aren't uh, aren't into uh, mass genocide or nuclear war. We're totally opposed to those things. Those are the only things that can really wipe um, anyone off the map. What we're talking about is wiping away a system and overthrowing a system that is predicated upon class rule, that are predicated upon the rule of the rich, the rule of uh, white supremacists in order to protect the rich, and the rule of the warfare state, which, in effect, protects the rich. This is what we're trying to get at. And so our challenge to American exceptionalism and innocence is very um, intentional in looking at historical examples, and we focus on the Black Liberation Movement because we have to be honest, the Black Liberation Movement has been the most revolutionary and radical political movement in the United States uh, throughout its history. And so we go back into uh, the history of this movement, talking about people like Claudia Jones, talking about people like W.E.B. Du Bois, Paul Robeson, uh, leaders of the Black Panther Party. Uh, We bring up their struggle and what that looked like to show that 
when you do question American exceptionalism, when you do question American innocence and you organize against it in, in terms of its material consequences, there, is, there are going to be uh, severe challenges. And we're already facing repression in a time where there, the movement is, probably, is, is at a low point, um, even though there is this upsurge in progressive uh, ideas and the fact that more and more of the population is coming to terms with the fact that there needs to be significant change uh, in the United States um, in order to better their condition, in order to better the condition of the population at large. There isn't really a struggle, a mass struggle around it, which is usually led by black people. And so we link the fight against American exceptionalism to this history of struggle in the United States. And um, we've talked a lot about anti-war struggle, anti-imperialist struggle in order to connect and build solidarity with people around the world and to show that in order to really strip away the belief of American exceptionalism and innocence, we need to uh, fight against this system that propagates it because then that's where we can really reach masses of people. Um, and I hope that our book is a tool to help, uh, you know, to help us do that. I think that's, that's why we wrote the book. Danny, I really appreciate you being on the show with us. Find all of Danny's writing at blackagendareport.com. Say hello to Glenn and Bruce for me and enjoy the rest of your evening, sir. I will. Thank you so much. Live from the good old U.S. of A. where capitalism is all our pimp, this is hell. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become this is hell's pimp, support this is hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. When you do, we will send you a gift you can pick from at our site. There's a T-shirt. There's a ceramic, or there's a stainless steel coffee mug. There's a tote bag, a T-shirt. Again, all you have to do is just go to thisishell.com and then click on support. Decide what gift you would like, and we will send it to you. Thanks this week goes to John H. for the incredible tithing-like commitment that he has shown to This Is Hell for so many years. Thanks for John. Thanks to John for supporting This Is Hell this week and in the coming days, weeks, months, and years. This Trump administration, your support will be needed more than ever. And if this Biden campaign continues, we'll even need it more than that. If you want to be thanked on air, support This Is Hell and get a t-shirt, This Is Hell coffee mug t-shirt, and or tote bag. Go to thisishell.com, click on support. If you're a Patreon subscriber, you get all our gifts at a discount. Just another reason to subscribe to This Is Hell at patreon.com slash thisishell. The modernization, centralization, and industrialization of meat processing in the United States during the late 19th century completely transformed the country ecologically, politically, economically, and had a huge impact on consumerism. We'll learn the massive impact of the cattle beef agribusiness complex when we hear from historian Joshua Specht, author of Red Meat Republic, A Hoof to Table, History of How Beef Changed America. Find out more about Joshua at Joshua Specht, S-P-E-C-H-T, Dot com. We got more listener feedback at chuck at thisishell.com. Guest suggestions keep rolling in from listeners, and we need all you can send because July is Listener Appreciation Month, and all guests throughout the entire month will be guests suggested by listeners. You, suggested by you. And if we select your suggested guest and actually get them on there and do an interview, we'll give you a special gift from your friends at This Is Hell. This one is from Steve. Hey there, Hellions. I have a couple of maybe not too serious suggestions for future guests, both fellow Brits, which helps with the possible This Is Hell theme of having Brits 
spill doom and gloom over the airwaves, though these two would help tilt the balance towards a more positive bent. First suggestion is Eddie Izzard, action transvestite and Labor Party activist, is in Chicago at the end of May. It would be fun to hear his views on the current state of play here and in the UK. Also, Billy Bragg just left Chicago but stated he would be back in the fall on a book tour with his latest book called The Three Dimensions of Freedom. He has been a driving force of socialism in the UK for 40 years and still spreading the faith. Keep up the great work on the show, though I think I was inspired to send this email after listening to Jem Bendel with his climate interview, which was so depressing yet inspirational. Cheers, Steve. Everybody was freaked out by that Jem Bendel interview. Eddie Izzard would be fantastic to have on the show. Having Billy Bragg on the show would be even better. I saw Billy at Joe's All-Star Lounge. I know it doesn't exist anymore. In Ann, Ar- in Ann Arbor, Michigan, on a Sunday night, on a wintry Sunday night back in 1984, and there were a total of maybe six people in the place, and I knew three of them. Back then, people were really anti-bootlegging, but my friend wanted to record anyway, despite the fact that we would likely be noticed as so few people were actually there. My friend puts the recorder on the bar, trying to hide it. Billy Bragg saw it and said, why don't you bring that up here on the stage? Which my friend did and got a fantastic recording of the entire show. So Billy Bragg on This Is Hell? Hell yes. Peter writes to tell us, Chuck, I read an excerpt from Mindfulness and Its Discontents, Education, Self, and Social Transformation by David Forbes in The Guardian this morning. He writes, How capitalism captured the mindfulness industry, the secular technique, and its relativist lack of a moral foundation has opened itself up to a host of dubious uses called out by its critics as mindfulness. I thought an interview with David Forbes would be great to hear on your show. Thanks for the suggestion, Peter. I forward it to Alex, and if anyone has guest suggestions for the show... And uh, send them to us. And if we get your suggested guest on the air during Listener Appreciation Month in July, we'll send you a mystery prize. It's a mystery, as we don't know what the hell it's going to be yet. Eric has also had a uh, guest suggestion. Hey, Chuck, amazing interview on your show. I'll get to the point. Amazing interviews on your show. I'll get to the point. I have a suggestion for a guest. I've been listening to Robert Evans' podcast, Behind the Bastards, for a while now. It only took me a few episodes to realize he is not your average podcaster. He's a former editor for Cracked, an author and conflict journalist who has spent time in Ukraine and Iraq. He is currently working on a book titled The War on Everyone, about the rise of American fascism. I'm constantly blown away by how historically grounded and well-read he is. He currently takes the bullet for all of us by following the far-right recruiting forums and their tactics, going to their rallies and tracking their leaders. I think he would give an amazing interview, and I would love the opportunity to plug his book. Check out his work. I think you will be very impressed, as I have. Love you guys, and Eric shared the link to BehindTheBastards.com. We're going to check into that as well. We have yet another guest suggestion sent to us at ChuckAtThisIsHell.com. This one is from Stephen. Hey, Chuck and Alex, I know you have had Nathan J. Robinson on the show before, but I can't remember in recent memory if you have had people on to discuss animal rights and, and welfare. Forgive me if you have. I do try and listen to every show, but life happens. Anyways, would love for you to have more people on to discuss this topic in regards to the 2020 election, like this article or just in general. 
Love and solidarity, Stephen. Stephen then provides us with a link to Nathan's article at Current Affairs from April 11th, Animals and 2020. Animal rights are important and should not be a secondary political issue, which I will check out, Stephen, as I really enjoy Nathan's work. And no, we have not talked about animal rights on our show in a very, very long time. Our anniversary and listener appreciation party and art show is happening on July 27th. And to show our appreciation to all our listeners, we are hoping that the art on display and the music that will be performed will all be by you, our listening audience. And we have a couple enticements to get you to submit your art and or music or art and music you would love to see and hear at the anniversary party, anniversary and listener appreciation party. Not only do we pay the musicians who play during the party, pretty impressive, right? But we do not take any commission from work sold at the art show. All of that money goes directly to the artists themselves again to show our appreciation for every one of our listeners. In fact, we already got some submissions of both music and art, and I'll be telling you about that maybe later on this morning's show, or this week's show, look at that, uh, if we get the opportunity. You can rate This Is Hell on Facebook, and after 199 respondents so far have, we have a 4.9 rating out of 5 stars because someone actually thinks that we should only get, we should get 0 stars, or was it only 1 star? I can't remember because they believe we are actually in the pocket of Vladimir Putin, which I wish we were, because then we'd be making more money. Stephen gave us five stars this week, and he writes, very important podcast. I recommended this show to anybody who understands that this is hell. And I can't remember if I read this on air already or not, but if I did, it's worth repeating. The one and only Bruce Dixon, again, of Black Agenda Report, gave us five stars and wrote, Chuck Mertz is a great interviewer. Nobody else asks the questions from hell. Bruce Dixon and everyone at Black Agenda Report friggin' rock. They've been our biggest supporters since we started in 1996. I cannot thank them enough. You too can go to facebook.com slash thisishellradio and give us five stars so I don't have to. And if you do and leave a comment, I'll read yours on the air. Whistling by the graveyard since 1996, this is hell. Genocide ushered in the era of cattle ranching. Then uh, being modernized, the new centralized, industrialized meat processing destroyed all their competitors, creating an abusive workplace and operations that would lead to today's agribusiness. Here to tell us the ugly story of the cattle beef complex and its global implications, historian Joshua Specht, author of Red Meat Republic, a hoof to table history of how beef changed America. Welcome to This Is Hell, Joshua. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Joshua teaches American history at Monash University in Australia. You can follow Joshua on Twitter at Josh Specht, S-P-E-C-H-T. Find out more about Joshua at joshuaspecht.com. You write the meatpacking mogul Jonathan Ogden Armour could not abide socialist agitators. It was 1906 and Upton Sinclair had just published The Jungle, an explosive novel revealing the grim underside of the American meatpacking industry. Sinclair's book told the tale of an immigrant family's toil in Chicago slaughterhouses, tracing the family's physical, financial, and emotional collapse. The jungle was not Armour's only concern. The year before, the journalist Charles Edward Russell's book, The Greatest Trust in the World, had detailed the greed and exploitation of a packing industry and came to the uh, American dining table three times a day and extorts its tribute. In response to these attacks, Armour, head of the enormous Chicago-based meatpacking firm Armour & Company, took to the Saturday Evening Post to defend himself and his industry, where critics saw filth, corruption, and exploitation 
armor saw cleanliness, fairness, and efficiency. If it were not for the professional agitators of the country, as he claimed, the nation would be free to enjoy an abundance of delicious and affordable meat. But these weren't protesters marching on armor. They, they were experiencing that already. These were authors. Could authors address concerns like food sanitation that could not be addressed by activists and protesters? Is this a sign of how dominant the meatpacking industry was and how much control they had even over the more political economy questions of meatpacking? I mean, first of all, I, I think you made it sound really good. You know, we should have had you do the, the audiobook. That was a, a very nice reading of oh, the opening please, of the Please, I am open for <laughs> audiobooks and uh, I, I work at a very low wage. But um, on, on that question, you know, I think so that that is that's kind of a start where that's actually the end of my story. And what I would say is by then, unfortunately, at the time Sinclair was writing and Russell, the meatpackers had actually kind of controlled the public conversation and kind of had the weight of state power on their side. So, you know, Sinclair's kind of most famous quote that isn't actually in the jungle was that he aimed for the public's heart but hit them in the stomach. So if you read The Jungle, it, it ends with um, Jurgis Rudkus, who's kind of the, the main character and his family. He's listening to a socialist talk about how they're going to take the streets of Chicago. And I think the idea is that the reader is going to read this and then immediately take to the streets. But of course, everyone kind of latched on to The Jungle's disgusting descriptions of, of rat feces. Um, so in a way, in 1906, maybe they're journalists and writers, it was a, a space for critique, but I'm not sure how much power it could have in a sense by then, which is kind of unfortunate. So why did it, fo why did people focus on, why did the, did the seemingly public discussion over the uh, jungle, why did it focus on sanitation and not the socialist revolution that Sinclair was hoping for? What, what were the conditions that led them to ignore the socialist revolution and only focus on sanitation? Was it just the sensational aspect of the book? Well, I think there's two things. I mean, there's, there's, an, there's an argument that basically the way capital kind of wins a debate in the late 19th century over labor is they basically they make a common good argument where they say, you know, you, you agitators, you workers, um, you protesting ranchers, you butchers, you say that, you know, you're a particular interest group. And actually what we're doing is we're looking for like the common good because our, our products are cheap. We're helping everyone. And so we want to help lift everyone up as opposed to these particular interests. And so they very savvily kind of frame the debate in a way that they're already kind of ahead of the game. The other thing though is, is maybe this is obvious. I mean, you know, think about what you had for breakfast. How interested are you going to be in the political economy of it if you're more worried it's going to poison you or it's going to have rat feces in there? So I think there also is a certain kind of gut appeal that explains the reception of the book as well, if you think about it. You also write about traditional butchers. How were traditional butchers seen as competition to the modern meat industry? After all, butchers weren't raising cattle like the meat industry was. All they were doing was buying uh, from those who raised beef to sell in a retail setting. So what was traditional butchering before the centralized, modernized beef industry, and why were they seen as competition? So um, one way to think about it is, is, first of all, an interesting thing about the kind of industrial meat system that kind of persists today is the meatpackers were, were interested in replacing wholesale butchers. So kind of the person you went into in the store, they didn't actually necessarily want to replace them because those people needed local knowledge. They needed to understand their customers. 
But before there was centralized meatpacking, those kind of local stores, they would buy from a kind of regional guy who would sell them quarters of beef. They wanted to take over those, that kind of wholesale distribution. Now, the reason they did that is because, I mean, this is my argument, is they found it easier to make a profit by kind of squeezing and exploiting those retail butchers by basically, you know, letting them capture less and less of the food dollar. That was kind of easier than competing with each other. So what you see is the meatpackers, rather than compete with each other in the late 19th century, they put pressure on ranchers to squeeze them on one end and they squeeze the retail butchers on the other end because that's a good way to get value out of your out of the food chain. You write that ultimately both uh, well, you write that the national market for fresh beef was the culmination of a technological revolution. But it was also the result of collusion and predatory pricing. How much was corruption behind America's diet becoming more centered around beef? Um, I mean, a, a fair bit, which is to say the way people ate and the way their meat was supplied maybe was a consequence of some of these technological changes and business changes, you know, railroads making it possible to connect distant parts of the country, refrigeration. But who would kind of be, who would kind of dominate the system? That was a product of kind of brutal business competition and a great deal of corruption. So the big debate of the late 19th century, or one of them, was the extent to which the meatpackers were colluding with each other. Now, they would always, of course, say they weren't, but the evidence is, is fairly overwhelming. Um, and you can see a number of, of government investigations that show this. So the way they kind of win the game in part is by, or at least take over more and more of that food dollar is by basically collusion. Could beef have become a central part of the U.S. diet without exploitation and corruption? Was it otherwise simply too cost prohibitive without corruption and exploitation? And the other things that you talk about, the low wages of workers. Um, you know, I think about that a lot. That actually gets to kind of a, a, a big intervention I'm, I'm trying to make. In a sense, I might say no. Um, you know, part of the reason beef is so cheap, which is obviously a prerequisite to everyone having it all the time, is because a lot of costs are pushed on to people. They're pushed on to workers. They're pushed on to ranchers. They're pushed on to environments. And so if you didn't have that process of kind of exploitation, I don't know if beef would be as cheap. Now, now of course, there's an interesting implication today, right? Because if I say, oh, well, the food industry needs all these reforms, well, at the end of the day, what that's going to do is also make beef much more expensive. And I, I don't want a world, right, in which beef, that then just favors people who are wealthier and kind of buy their way out of this. So the, one of the conclusions of the book then is that kind of reforming the food system, forcing it to internalize some of these costs and maybe minimizing them actually also requires a kind of program of, of economic justice such that, you know, Americans are more able to afford meat that is more expensive, if that kind of makes sense. So I, I don't think you could have had that super cheap beef without some of this kind of violence and exploitation. That's fascinating. You write as much as a story of science or technology, modern architecture or agriculture is a compromise between the unpredictability of nature and the rationality of capital. And same might be said for architecture too. But anyway, uh, <laughs> how well has that compromise worked out for nature? For nature? Uh, yeah, not, not well. Um, you know, I like to, I think nature often gets its revenge, I think. Uh, and, and maybe some of the ways we talk about climate change could be different if we, we took that perspective. But basically, th what I'm saying there is that originally, you know, people who actually 
Oh, no, put it this way. If you look at the food system today, right, the most profitable parts of the food chain are not, connect, are, are not the people who do the actual work of growing a crop or raising an animal, right? They're people who kind of control the agricultural inputs like the fertilizer and the pesticides or they're the processors. And that's because the, the process of actually working the land and engaging with nature is unpredictable. You have diseases, you have climate changes. And so it's really hard to turn that into big business. And so what these big corporations figured out they could do is kind of offload the risk onto like small, relatively small scale farmers or ranchers. Um, and then they could kind of be the kind of big business end of the story. Now, what that means, of course, is that they're not shouldering any of the burden or responsibility for the environmental impacts or the you know human impacts of agricultural labor. And so it'll allows for a lot of exploitation that leads to environmental collapse, you know, and then land explains some of our current climate problems, perhaps. Can cattle farmers accurately claim that whatever critics may not like about the way cattle are raised, it's not their fault, but some corporations, simultaneously, while corporations are blaming any uh, problems of the system back on the ranchers? Um, well... I would say that basically ranchers are – they're in a marginal position where they kind of have to go along with the dominance of the food processors. And so you definitely can't blame them. Now, my, my book is also a critique of the kind of family farm ideal because these, these are big, big businesses. It's just how much relative power they have. And I think the pressure put on them connected to pricing, connected to, in the case of, say, something like poultry, just like contract requirements from the big poultry producers, those kinds of things really explain the, the way in which ranching or other kinds of livestock raising work. Um, so yeah, I think it's, I'm trying not to blame, put the burden too much on them. Um, yeah. You write that a small number of firms still control most of the countries and by now the world's beef they draw from many comparatively small ranchers and cattle feeders and depend on low paid, mostly invisible workforce. Why are they invisible? Mm -hmm. What makes them invisible? Um, I would say a combination of marginality and inability to effectively organize. Um, you know, so in my period, most of the people working in these Chicago slaughterhouses were Eastern European recent immigrants. During strikes, there were often people brought in, um, at times African Americans to kind of create racial divides or people brought in from the South, but often these were recent immigrants from Eastern Europe. And they didn't have necessarily a good command of how America worked. It made it harder for them to organize. They were adjusting to a new life. If you look at a lot of working in slaughterhouses today and food processing, oftentimes they're undocumented people from Latin America. And so I see a parallel there. Um, and I think part of why they're invisible gets at what we were just talking about, which is that when we think about our food, we really obsess over the price and whether or not it's going to poison us. Um, and as long as we're not thinking about those things, we don't really think about how our food was produced or, or why. And in chapter five of the book, I, I kind of try to figure that out. And I think it's a combination of politics, but I think it's also a little bit like what we do with food and what it means to us, which is that food is very personal. So in the process of preparing or cooking food, we kind of personalize it in a way that also kind of makes it harder for us to think about it as part of a system. And I think this is common with a lot of commodities. How dependent has the meat industry always been on surplus labor caused by immigration? And what impact 
has that had on immigration policy in general? Because the one thing I really enjoy about your book is how these uh, the situation with beef has had ramifications on so many different aspects, not only of our culture and our society, but policymaking and our entire planet. So, how dependent? Uh, uh, so, what impact has that had on immigration policy here in the United States? Um. So I would say that in terms of the processing, so in my in, in the period the book mainly focuses on, right, in terms of, of direct policy, there's not really there's not really a kind of modern immigration regime, which doesn't come till the twentieth century. Uh, it definitely shapes attitudes though about encouraging immigration. And then in, in the twentieth century, kind of near the end of my book in the conclusion, I think you definitely see immigration policy being shaped by agricultural needs. You get the development of a guest worker program. Although that's that's more in both crop growing and the kind of early production side like you might see in, in ranching, although immigrant labor is not so big there. Um, so that definitely a guest worker regime is shaped by this broader food system, although slaughterhouse work, it's more – I would say it, it because it relies so much on this labor, it actually militates against some of the modern. It would, you know, people, slaughterhouse operators actually would want a kind of permissive immigration regime, but not a generous one, right? Because the marginality of the workers is very important to profits, if, if that makes sense. It does. You write the fact that meatpacking's profitability depended on a brutal labor regime meant conflicts between labor and management were ongoing and at times violent. For workers, workers uh, strikes during the 1880s and 90s were largely unsuccessful. This was the result of state support for management, a winning pool of replacement workers, and extreme hostility to any attempts to organize. State support mattered most of all during an 1886 fight, for instance. Authorities garrisoned over a thousand men to preserve order and protect property. Even when these troops did not clash with strikers, it had a chilling effect on attempts to organize. Did the military enforce the brutal regime of meatpacking? Um, I mean, not basically state. I would say state powers did. Um, kind of like national guard, and and like expanded uh, police policing. So some sort of like regime of state power and state violence did, in fact enforce the meatpacking regime. Now, the way that worked, of course, gets back to what I was saying earlier, which is just that broadly speaking, the public debate turned very much against organized labor, um, especially in the aftermath of the Haymarket violence in Chicago uh, in 1886. And so, you know, people basically didn't buy the labor argument and, and the fact that these people were often immigrants and seemed foreign further kind of undermined their cause. And, and the public just embraced this idea that labor should be crushed. I mean, one one question I asked myself a lot here is uh, Philip Danforth Armour, who was the father of the guy we opened with, he hated organized labor. And yet his his company was so profitable. At times when I was writing the book, I had to stop and think, you know, did he actually need to exploit his workers to the extent he did to be profitable? And to a certain extent, yes, but I also just realized that he just had such an ideological hatred of labor organizing that you know, he would just oppose it at any cost. And I think that attitude actually gets into the ether a bit um, or in the broader community. It's an example why when Teddy Roosevelt is president, he embraces, he's very suspicious of big business, very suspicious, but he's equally suspicious about socialism and in some ways organized labor. So in a way, he's, he's, he takes the kind of taming rather than remaking capitalism attitude because he shares this broader suspicion of unions or organized labor. 
We are speaking with historian Joshua Specht. He is author of Red Meat Republic, a hoof-to-table history of how beef changed America. Joshua teaches American history at Monash University in Australia. You can follow Joshua on Twitter at Josh Specht, S-P-E-C-H-T, and find out more about Joshua at joshuaspecht.com. You write today, most local butchers have gone bankrupt and marginal ranchers have had little choice but to accept their marginality in the U.S. and increasingly punitive immigration regime makes slaughterhouse work ever more precarious and ag-gag laws that define animal rights activism as terrorism keep slaughterhouses out of the public eye. How little public oversight is there of the meatpacking industry? And is there any discussion of ending that stupid law where animal rights activism, like filming what actually happens in meatpacking facilities, is illegal? Um, so I would say, first of all, there currently is some oversight, although recently there have been calls about allowing a little bit more industry self-regulation in poultry, uh, which just to, to, to cut to the future, that's not going to end well, in my opinion. Um, I would say that there's very good public oversight in term, although it's being eroded, as I just suggested, in terms of sanitation. And that's because it's a problem that the industry can solve. And in a way, it kind of serves their interest, right? They don't want you to be worried your food's going to poison you. But what it means is if they can ensure you're not, there's not really any oversight over anything else. There's not oversight over the conditions for the animals. That's very meaningful. There's not, insi- there's not oversight in terms of the labor. And there's not much regulation in terms of market power for some of these actors. Um, so, you know, it's a mixed bag. And, and, and the book tries to suggest there's, there's decent oversight in some things, although, again, sanitation is being rolled back. But, but in a way that enables a total lack of oversight in other ways that I think are more fundamental. As far as the ag-gag stuff, um, to my knowledge, unless there's been any very recent developments, not really. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of support for rolling some of these things back. And the meatpacking industry and the meat processing industry is hugely suspicious of anybody doing any kind of study. Um, I mean, even just driving around uh, both California, Colorado, Texas, when I was doing my research, even if you stop and you like look around a feedlot, even just casually, you'll see security starting to kind of invest or be kind of suspicious. And I think the other thing is that actually some of the slaughterhouses that have talked to people actually have been punished the most, so it makes sense they're suspicious. If you remember that scandal over pink slime, which was this kind of weird meat paste that was used to produce, I believe, chicken nuggets? Right. That scandal broke because um, that slaughterhouse was actually like reasonable about wanting to talk to people. So like the lesson there for the meat packers, of course, is even further paranoia. So I think they're not really <laughs> they're not they're not changing. I don't see the change of their ways unless we use a bit more. Uh, so, so what to you to you what explains the lack of uh, sure there seems to be political pressure on making sure that the food is the meat is clean and safe and sanitation what explains to you the lack of political pressure on making the workplace a safer place a more sanitary place a place where workers are making better money i mean you know that's that's a that's a big question, right? I mean, what is the what is the what is the reason behind the kind of sad state of of, of labor in the United States? Um, hard to answer. I, I say in the case of food, actually in the case of a lot of things, I think I think that industry uses price and low prices as a cudgel to to oppose any argument that would change how things are produced. So the entire food industry, like a lot of industries, um, is organized around the lowest price possible, and in some sense that's good, of course, because we want cheap food. Um, but what that means is almost any change to the status quo 
whether labor reform, climate change stuff, any change will increase prices to consumers. And so the industry uses that as an argument to kind of short circuit any kind of reform. And so this kind of price logic that's dominant over so many parts of the American economy, I think, is is a big part of what makes it hard to rework some of these things. You write about uh, the original kind of skepticism that people seem to have had. You write how they, uh, these actors all framed their interests in a way that made them palatable to a wider audience. Often the strategy was to portray industrialized food as inevitable. This way of framing mm-hmm. changes in food production helped transform centralized industrial food from strange and artificial to familiar and natural. To what degree was the consuming public from the outset not only skeptical of industrial f- food, but how did the consuming public finally get convinced that it was familiar and natural? Um, so first of all, just a you know a little experiment you know you can do in the studio or people can do at home. You know, imagine that you had never eaten something like you're eating something that was slaughtered and lived you know thousands of miles away, and you had never done that before. It it would be kind of a strange thought. It'd be like someone came to you with a steak and they said it was from a cow that was on the moon. Um, so immediately there's a kind of weird feeling, right? People are uneasy with this idea. And also in the early stages of transporting refrigerated meat, often the stuff wasn't doing great by the time it got out of the, off the, you know, the rail car. It was maybe a little gray, maybe a little freezer burned. So the people are uneasy, right? I mean, this is just a weird thought and maybe it doesn't even look appealing. And the trick of course is price. Um, it's much cheaper, so it starts with poor Americans, um, and and by the way, high, very high-end meat, kind of local meat, continues in this period. But but it starts with poor Americans, and it sort of spreads as they get more and more used to it. And the price, you know, when prices are twenty percent lower when you go to your butcher, it it has a certain appeal, and people just sort of get used to it. Um, and the other funny thing about that, right, is that in order to get people to not be suspicious, they have low prices. But of course, also to bankrupt local competition, they cut prices as low as possible. And so it gives them a convenient argument. They say, well, we're not we're not engaging in predatory pricing. We're just trying to appeal to consumers. Um, so it's kind of funny, two processes going on at once. Did meatpacking pioneer the way in which Americans essentially accept anything, no matter the artificial ingredients in their food? Did meatpacking pave the way for the U.S. proclivity toward accepting all technological change as inevitable and necessary. Do we today accept the fact that the uh, the new cell phone we just got, the new smartphone we just got, will be obsolete in a few years, and you'll have to buy the next one? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think maybe it contributed to that world. I mean, first of all, even if you just think about something like the assembly line, Meat processing, um, starting from pork processing in Cincinnati before this and then in Chicago, was kind of the prototype for the assembly line. In Henry Ford's memoirs, he talks about seeing – in Chicago, seeing a beef disassembly line as being his inspiration. Um, So first of all, it did model all sorts of things about kind of industrial modernity. Um, But as far as, you know, going, not thinking about the consequences of our commodities, um, you know, eating, not really worrying what's in our food, this is a start. And I think I see some of trends as being similar to elsewhere in terms of how we kind of make meaning immediate meaning with our commodities and then kind of forget the production story. I think it's there. And in some ways, beef was a pioneer in that. I, I couldn't say it was the totality of the story. That was a pioneer. Why do you think history so glamorizes and glorifies 
Ford's assembly line without glamorizing or glorifying the disassembly line that it was based on that predated it. It seems like there would not have been the assembly line if there wasn't the disassembly line. So why in our popular telling of history do we ignore the disassembly line while focusing only on the assembly line? Um, interesting question. I mean, here's one guess. Uh, one of the things I argue in the book is, right, and I've kind of come up in this conversation, the meat packers in, in the late 19th century and food processors today do not want you thinking about how their food is, your food is produced, right? So they want that to be invisible. In, in the book, I talk about how there's a revolution kind of behind the scenes in food production from the perspective of a consumer. Henry Ford, right, he was all about the kind of like spectacle of the assembly line. So he turned it in, for him, it was almost like a positive. You know, it wasn't this gruesome process. So he kind of, I think, popularized the idea of industrial, the assembly line. So I think that might be might be part of it. You write that ranchers developed their own arguments, ideas about progress and improvement justified their expropriation of American Indian land. Later ranchers in the 1890s defended their industry as family-centered, non-industrial, and authentically American, a perspective that still informs public perception of the business today. So they were pro-progress when expropriating land from Native Americans, but they became good old farmers once they were confronted by the progress that meatpacking promised. Did ranchers go from being pro-genocide to pro-family? I mean, that's... um, I would say... First of all, I would say that, you know, in terms of the the genocide end of the story, I would say it was a set of unexamined assumptions about what constituted progress. But but actually, I think those two things you've said, even though it's a pretty loaded framing, are actually intertwined, right? The idea that you're kind of like forging a land into your own and how that connects to your sense of control and family, those are tightly linked. And so some of the values that led to the expropriation of American Indian land, you still see in that kind of authentic, individualist, kind of we did this narrative and idea that you get in this family period. Um, One of the interventions or things I'm trying to argue in the book too, by the way, is that even though we get this idea, this kind of family-centered idea, ranching is big business and these people are shrewd business people. Um, And so I'm, I'm kind of mixing up all those categories freely, if that makes sense. Did, let me just ask, did meat, especially beef, lead to indigenous genocide? What role did it play in that genocide? Um, it, so in terms of the dispossession of American Indian land and um, you know genocides, I would say that cattle ranching was both a tool of that and a justification for it. So what I mean by that is it wasn't a simple story like the U.S. military just went you know, conquered the West violently and like swiped it clean and then they put cattle there. Rather, cattle would be part of a process of taking control of land. So you would go there, you would scatter your cattle around. Uh, American Indians would be angry because there's this animal and they're interfering with their traditional hunting grounds or it's far away from anything, they might kill it. Then you use that killing as a justification for advocating for military intervention. Meanwhile, in the early phase of settlement, ranchers are some of the first people in some in parts of, in some areas like Texas, they're functioning as basically paramilitaries, I would argue. Um, so there's that kind of material, they're a tool for conquest, but also the argument that like ranching is putting land to higher use than the land is being put to becomes the justification for why you can take the land, right? That's part of it. There was a, a, a line drawn from cattle ranching to like 
Western cities. And people talked about this a lot in the late 19th century. This was a stage of development, and so it was justified to seize this land for people who were not using it. So you had people referring to it when American Indians were there as a, as a quote-unquote barren waste, and that in the government official later says it's a scene of enterprise and thrift once there's cattle ranching. You write this remaking of land and space also contributed to a remaking of American institutions. The American regulatory state grew as it struggled to deal with the consequences of a new way of producing beef. Business concentration was at the heart of the landmark Sherman Antitrust Act, and its chief initial focus was on the power of the railroads. However, the shipment of Refrigerated beef was deeply connected to the story. Railroad attempts to manage traffic often focused on the relative rates for shipping live cattle and refrigerated beef. The Chicago meatpackers fought for more than a decade against these attempts to fix shipping costs. This fight actually ended in the meatpackers' victory. Eventually, the mighty railroads would ask regulators for protection from the ruinous demands of Chicago's Big Four. Was the Sherman Antitrust Act ever enforced on the meatpacking industry? And then I have a follow-up to that. Um, so no, it was mostly, so antitrust laws and, and rulings for meatpacking industries. So it was, a, a, antitrust was, it was a major factor for meatpacking, although the Sherman use was more connected to the railroad. So in 1905, there was a ruling, basically there had been a few decades of investigation of meatpacking where they'd been like, you're colluding. And the meatpackers said, no, we're not. And when it seemed like they were finally going to lose this fight, the meatpackers had a clever idea that they would all merge together and form the National Packing Company. And then they would say, well, we can't collude because we're only one company. Um, and obviously, <laughs> federal regulators saw through this. And there was a big ruling in 1905 that basically uh, broke them up. Now, my argument is that it's kind of like closing the door after the barn, you know, after the, or closing the barn door after the animals are already out, like it stopped the meat packers from colluding in, in 1905. But of course, they'd been do they'd been winning by colluding for 25 years, so it was a little bit late. Did meat packing create a culture in Washington that was more willing to accept government regulations? Did meat packing create the regulatory state in the U.S. and its acceptance by elected leaders to expand it into other areas? Is meat packing the cause of big government? Um. It certainly contributed to it. As far as the regulation of business, I would say the railroads are probably still where the action is as far as meatpacking, but meatpacking definitely contributed to it. And it did contribute to the expansion of consumer regulations. So the USDA deals with meat inspection, but th in even things like the FDA, that all grew out of debates surrounding basically fears about contamination in products. So anything that's to do with like consumer regulation, I would argue is very strongly connected to the history of meatpacking. To what extent then did meatpacking lead to the first reforms of a consumer market or had that already been done in the past or was this unprecedented? It was unprecedented. Um, so basically in, so you get the jungle around this time we started in 1906. Around the same, Teddy Roosevelt hates Upton Sinclair because he thinks he's a socialist. But, you know, he says, well, you know, there's, there is something to this because Teddy Roosevelt was suspicious of the meatpackers. Um, he starts these investigations. Around the same time, you get the creation of the Pure Food and Drug Act, which kind of goes on to be influential in things like the FDA, and the Federal Meat Inspection Act, which starts to deal with inspection of our food. And so, yeah, I think this is, this is some of the first consumer regulation. Did reforms to the meatpacking industry only strengthen the meatpacking industry? Because we've been talking a lot on our show if, about whether reforming capitalism simply reinforces it, making it stronger and potentially more oppressive. So have reforms, have fixes to meatpacking 
only reinforced agribusiness and its power. Yes. <laughs> um, well, but basically what I'm saying is, you know, as I try to argue in the book, like regulation of sanitation serves their interests. Um, so in a way, it, it's that's one of the reasons why those regulations are so successful because it's, it's kind of win-win for business. Um, and the other thing is, you know, it's funny because this is an argument you could hear um, basically on the left and the right in a way, and that's that you know, once you get regulation, compliance costs favor big business. Um, now, I, I, I believe a version of that. I don't think you can use that to justify opposition to any regulation, as a libertarian might have you believe. Um, but there's something to that, right? You know, it's very expensive to deal with these kinds of meat inspections. So only the biggest meat packers can do it, and that kind of strengthens their hold. Now, what my book tries to do is explore why we embrace a regulatory state around sanitation and not a robust one around labor um, or various other factors. And, and part of that's about suspicion of, of organized labor, but I don't know if that helps clarify. You write that while consumers' concerns about prices and sanitation seem self-evident, we have to understand the logic of consumers who demanded beef more than any other food and were at times willing to riot for cheap beef rather than eat fish or chicken. What explains <laughs> that demand more than any other meat? Was it successful marketing or advertising? What, what explains why people weren't rioting over cheap fish or chicken? Yeah, I always think, you know, it's like you, you, you think that, you know, you're a kid and, and you think your family's going to come back and you're going to have a steak and they come back with a potato and you just think, oh, what is this for dinner? And so I think this, <laughs> the, story, the story really is basically the majority of immigrants coming to the United States from Europe – Meat was a special occasion food, particularly beef. You might have that on a feast day, you know, other religious holidays. And so a, when they move to America, a special occasion food becomes an all-the-time food. You can, ha you can actually have beef. And there are immigrants who are saying, you know, life in America is tough, but I get meat all the time. And what happens is that meat becomes a metric for your success in America, right? You can, you can kind of show your success as a laborer, as an immigrant, as an American by your ability to not just have meat all the time, but to have fancier meat. And this is how you get to the politicization of meat consumption. So you get elites complaining that, you know, the quote unquote common laborer expects the fancy porterhouse steak and won't settle for a round steak, which is much less nice. Similarly, you get labor pamphlets, um, like one that unfortunately is endorsing Chinese exclusion, but it's called meat versus rice, you know, which will survive. And the idea is like, will the American laborer continue to have their meat or will Chinese immigration bring down the state of the American laborer to having rice? And so you get this idea that eating meat becomes the way you can show your success as a worker or as an American. And that's why everyone needs beef. That's just amazing. So uh, one of the things that you mentioned is the global consequences of Am American ranching and meatpacking mm -hmm. being very profound. And you talk about how it led to the kind of meat processing and uh, livestock farming that we see in Latin America, especially in Brazil and Argentina yeah. and elsewhere. So <laughs> is Amazon deforestation to feed cattle a legacy of American 19th century meatpacking? Is the U.S. cattle industry or at least its history, responsible for Amazon deforestation? Um, I wouldn't put that on the ranchers in America. You know, I've, I've, I, it's funny, like in the book, I alternate between, I, I mean, I have great sympathy for, for ranchers today, even if the, 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 the 19th century history is a bit ugly. I, I, 
I would put that that model as being developed by the, the meatpackers of the late 19th century and food processors today. Um, like I said, you know, the, the big four, the big four meatpacking companies of the late 19th century survive in some form today. One of them, Swift, was acquired by the Brazilian food beef processor JBS to make the largest meat processor in the world in 2007. And so they kind of created a mold that then gets implemented and acted upon in South America, as well as a way to relate to nature that I think you can see not a direct line, but kind of a resonance with this uh, deforestation in the Amazon. And by the way, when we talk about the impact of beef production on climate change, the worst of it is in places where there's deforestation. So beef production globally contributes a lot more than kind of ongoing ranching in, in places like the U.S., which is important to know. You write about uh, canned beef. You point out that on the lower end of the quality scale, canned beef would become <sighs> a vital product for militaries <laughs> in the age of imperialism. Uh, what role then did beef play in imperialism? Could have imperialism happened without canned beef? Did wars increase with the introduction of canned beef? Um, well, first of all, canned beef is is was pretty gross. So, you know, no one's going to eat it unless you're a soldier where you can be kind of required to eat it. Um, and they used to have these like advertisements to get you to serve it at your dinner party. And they always said, make sure you take it out of the can where no one can see. Um, but as far as as far as imperialism, I mean, in a way, uh, you know, I, I can't I can't go quite that far, but you know, th if you think about a lot of imperial projects are happening in very tropical places, it's hard to keep people fed. Um, and you had in the late 19th century, you had people in the British Empire writing about how important canned beef was to keeping people uh, healthy and kind of happy. Um, and so it definitely contributed and definitely was part of the process. And the other thing I would say is, if if you think about it the other way. The demand from Europe's growing imperial projects helped kind of build up industrial meatpacking, which is to say you got things like the French government ordering three million pounds of canned beef in the late 19th century. That's a massive contract for a company like Armour. And so that demand is helping helping build up their business in the U.S. So you get kind of a back and forth between imperial projects and these big meatpacking conglomerates. How much is beef the beginning of consumerist mentality where consumerism and what's best for the consumer erases discussion of political economy and critiques of industrialization and capitalism in general is beef the beginning of hyper-consumerism in the u.s and prioritizing the idea of the consumer almost over the idea of being a citizen i would say it's a big part of the beginning so they're not really using that term yet in the late 19th century like consumer in, in quite the same sense we mean, but they are talking about the public or the common good or the common laborer. And you see that in a few different industries. I think meat is, is one of the biggest. So I would say it does, I, I think of it as more like it sets the model that then gets expanded and kind of built upon in the 20th century. Just a few more questions for you, Joshua. You write the history of the beef industry it reminds yep. us that uh, the method of producing food is a question of politics and political economy rather than technology and demographics. And then you point out that alternative, alternate possibilities remain hazy, but if we understand this story as one of political economy, we might be able to fulfill Armour & Company's old credo, we feed the world using a more equitable system. How might the history of meatpacking point us toward a more equitable system? Well, I think that I mean, unfortunately, my, well, my conclusion is that it's 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 very difficult, but that it's potentially revolutionary. Which is to say that 
you know, we can't just think about it as a question of of just the labor movement or just an environmental movement or just a, a question of animal welfare or just a question of corporate power. We have to think about it holistically because those are all the different facets that are kind of propping up this system. And so what that means is we have to think a conversation about how we produce our food is also a conversation about what kind of society we want to live in. And we got to tackle it in a big way. And I think the 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 biggest thing for me with that is that we have to think about how we can live in a more kind of equitable society in terms of wealth. And once we kind of start to work on that, we can simultaneously start to work on food production in a way that is going to be more costly, but then also more obtainable. If that, I mean, I'm kind of cheating a bit because it's ultimately a history book, but that's kind of what I've been thinking through. And also focusing more on political action as opposed to individual consumer politics. One of the conclusions of the book is that you know your choice as a consumer is a political distraction in a way rather than meaningful political change through candidates, through political movements, through laws. Well, during that response, I was standing up and applauding, but you didn't hear it. So, uh, <laughs> Joshua, you write spatial flexibility and the close relationship between the centralized regulatory state and big business mean that centralized food production is here to stay. Industry critics must consider this reality before advocating practices like locavorism or decentralization. How does the relationship between the state and business undermine the possibilities for locavorism or decentralized revolution? Because we've had a lot of people, or I've talked to a lot of people, not necessarily on the show, who want to embrace locavorism. So how does that relationship between state and business undermine those possibilities? Well, I mean, first I'll just say, you know, this is this is a part of a book, you know, the conclusion that I, I've really thought hard about um, as I try to kind of spread it out to debates today. So I'm, I'm still remaining somewhat open-minded about it, although I do stand by that argument. I mean, one, one thing I think is that as much as I hate to say it after this whole conversation, I'm a little bit persuaded by a certain kind of idea of centralization as 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 producing certain kinds of efficiency now at at great human and environmental exploitation. Um, but I think unfortunately, I think often certain kinds of local production end up being a bit too uh, niche and end up kind of occupying the kind of upper end of the customer scale and start to orient the debate around consumer choice, you know, choose to buy organic, choose to buy locally. When really, I think, if we start to have a conversation about reforming these bigger companies, that would kind of, I think that's a better angle of attack, I guess. It's, it's, it's a bit a question of strategy, I would say. We have been speaking with historian Joshua Specht. He is author of Red Meat Republic, a hoof-to-table history of how beef changed America. Joshua teaches American history at Monash University at Aus- in Australia. You can follow Joshua on Twitter at Josh Specht, S-P-E-C-H-T. Find out more about Joshua at joshuaspecht.com. Josh, we have one last question for you, and it's the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, oh. you might hate to answer, our audience will hate your response. We do it with all of our guests, so it's not just you, I promise. You <laughs> write about the mythos of the American rancher and how it was very much developed by this historian named McCoy, if I remember right, mm-hmm. uh, in the 1880s and 1890s. So there's this thing that Americans really, I mean, you, Coors commercials, you can see it there. There's this mythos of the American rancher that everybody in this country seems to embrace. Is our society organized around beef? And if so, how difficult will that make it for Americans to make the consumer choice to eat less beef in adapting to climate change? Mm, 
That is a good question. I think that the the idea of the cowboy, which is a certain is 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 a, a variant of our understanding of ranching, is in fact at the core of what it means to be American. And I think changing the place of beef in our diet is also about changing our understanding, or at least coming to terms with what it means to be American. Um, and I think that means it's going to be very difficult, but I think that also means it's it's pretty exciting. And I also think that hopefully in my book, although I'm, I'm a little worried about the reception among ranchers, that I find a way to both find what's interesting and powerful about that story, but also in a way that kind of deconstructs it a bit. I don't know. I feel like I might be dodging this this question from hell. <laughs> That's okay. It just as an aside, I wanted to just mention at the end. Uh, my grandfather was uh, actually killed in the meatpacking industry. He oh. was in a Grand Trunk railroad car. He was a foreman down wow. in, in Detroit. And uh, he was in a packed car that was full of uh, dressed meat, meat hanging on hooks. Uh, the car wow. stopped quickly and all of the beef came down and crushed him. He refused to go to the doctor and then wow. died from internal bleeding like three months later. So when I saw this article coming wow. out, when I saw wow. the book coming out, I definitely wanted to talk to you about this. And then we wanted to have you on because, hey, we're doing the show at night tonight and we can actually reach somebody in Australia. And then I found out you're in the far flung area of Gary, Indiana. Yeah. No, South Bend. Sorry, South, South Bend. Bend. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm on a, I'm on leave this semester, and I, I thought it would be good to be based in the U.S. when the book comes out and kind of I can do things like this. Yeah. Well, Josh, thank you so much for being on the show. It's a fascinating book. I'm really looking forward to uh, maybe having you back on when you put out another edition so we can uh, get some more, uh, you know, addenda to it. Thanks. It's a great conversation. Thank you very Thanks, much. Josh. Take care. The future ain't what it used to be. This is hell. Okay, let's read your questions to this week's... Your questions. Uh, it's the answer from hell. It's like uh, we're doing Jeopardy this week. We give you the answer, you ask us the question. Maybe we should do that sometime. Okay, let's read your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what will the last burger be made of? And no saying, rich people, we already know you want to eat them. What will the last burger be made of? All replies read on air right now. This week's winner gets a book we... Just talked about on this week's show, Joshua Specht's Red Meat Republic, A Hoof-to-Table History of How Beef Changed America. America, or America. Again, the question from hell is, what will the last burger be made of? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisisallradio, to still have a chance at winning this week's prize. Alex, you have, and you can direct message us on Twitter as well, at thisisallradio. Alex, you have all the answers to this week's question from hell, just because... Uh, that was an extremely on-brand anecdote about your grandfather's death there. Chuck. Isn't that nice? Okay, question from Never Mel. met him, by the way. Uh, question from Mel is, what will the last burger be made of? Uniten R says, probably fake meat produced by genetically modified bacteria. <laughs> Alexandra H says, poor people. <laughs> uh, good one, Alexandra H. Uh, Parker H says, cows. <laughs> Krimsky K says beer mats and silicone. <laughs> Jason L says pretty much whatever's left that isn't either underwater or on fire. Walter C says soylent cheese. Dan K says nothing. Peter P says pulped hard copies of the Mueller report, which was finally made public after the death of God Emperor Baron Trump the <laughs> Fourth. What will the last burger be made out of? Marty P says radiated slash marinated monkey meat, little dirty birdie feet. Scott S. says, As the last human roams the earth, they will stop to make a jellyfish burger with cockroach flour buns and a very nice aioli. 
After his burger, Keith Richards will enjoy a nice cigarette rolled with whatever scraps of plants he can find that aren't already too scorched. That problem with that answer is far too believable. Nikki e says, I like shoops in Indiana and on the south side. Those have irregular patties. It's very straightforward playing meat. I also like billy goat, a nice bun with thick slice of onion. But finally, I'd be perfectly content with White Castle's Impossible Burgers. Vegan with no cheese, but I do like the cheese. The meatless patty tastes like a combination of good ground beef mixed with good pork sausage. I wasn't expecting it to be palatable, but it was. Or I take acid and drink heavily and give you the wrong information. Yeah, I'm going to go with the latter there. Mark A says, John Stossel's mustache. <laughs> what will the last burger be made out of? William C says, memories and indignation. <laughs> Who's that? Uh, William C. Bobby A says, Cliven Bundy. Mindy H says, keto tardigrade patties. Aaron B says, so what if somebody who had money had an opinion on this? Your basis for inclusion is effed. Don't hate the players, hate the game. Hey, I forgot again. Who was who said uh, uh, memories and indignation? That was William C. Okay, thank you. Uh, Aaron K. Or Aaron B. Continued on. He's not listening, so we can just talk crap about him. I'm sure. <laughs> he said this is on a platform governed by Forbes billionaire. Ironic, much? Uh, yeah, Aaron. Uh, we are very aware of the irony of doing this on uh, Facebook. Tom S. <laughs> says synthetic heme-fused polystyrenomer synthetic fibers impregnated with amino acids, vitamins, and minerals. Didn't he recognize the irony of him responding to something on Facebook? Uh, maybe I should point that out. <laughs> uh, Mark R. says dust. Well, the last burger we made it off. Andrea J. says your own leg. Bill, <laughs> Bill E. says soil and green. Adam A. says it won't matter. People will be ready to kill for the last burger no matter what it's made from. Dan O says, Amazon workers, same day delivery. <laughs> uh, Martin S says, Vat slab, trademark. David T says, it will taste like the heartwood of the very last tree cut down on earth. And the dinner, the diner's experience will be enhanced by the joy of hearing as the, sh hear, cheering as the, as the chefs feed the newly cut limbs into the chipper for grinding into patties. Stephen S. says, Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, Cotta F. says, The Big Crap. Elliot P. says, Zuckerburgers. <laughs> Gorilla G. says, Crushed up prescription time-release burger pills. It will lead to a Jetsons-era addiction epidemic. Pammy H. says, Snuffleupagus meat. <laughs> Jesse W. says, Plastic. Harold J. says, Taco, Taco Bell. Ed W. says, Soylent Green. Simo Simone S. says rat meat with roach crunchies strewn atop. <laughs> Jeffy D. says reconstituted garbage Pacific garbage patch jerky. What will the last burger be made out of? Nick A. says the impossible burger, the impossible burger will replace all our needs for meat burgers. The last meat burger will be made of Jeff Dorchin. <laughs> Hillary C. says... At least it'll be kosher, right? <laughs> Hillary C. says maggots. They've been <laughs> feasting on the corpses of the rich. Hillary then, Clinton. That's uh, great that yeah, she wrote thanks. that. Thanks. I knew she was a listener. I had a yeah. suspicion about that. Uh, and then um, Hillary sent us a link to a story from the New York Post called Humans Will Eat Maggot Sausages as Meat Alternatives. Scient <laughs> Aren't uh, we already? Uh, colon scientists. <laughs> Aaron C. Oh, Aaron. Aaron C. said, D's nuts. And then he said, you have to say it, Chuck. It's like, no, Chuck doesn't have to say it. I have to say it. Thanks, Aaron. <laughs> Marshall W. says, with extreme terrestrial shocks and higher, warmer oceans, probably jellyfish. Kevin O., keeping it classy, says, pubes. <laughs> Chris L. says, the last bit of cognitive dis dissonance left in humans. <laughs> 
Jessica B says the microworms that grow on organic waste. Those ones Jem Bendel mentioned. Joshua B said crickets, roaches, or other insect proteins. Jacob P said impossible burger. Ugh. Yeah, that's right. A burger with a living wage in 2019 <laughs> in between the buns. <laughs> Uh, Jacob P. also said obligatory nothing burger comment, and he said obligatory explanation that Rince Priebus used that phrase once, nothing burger. Daniel N. said 300-day grain-fed organic beautifully marbled post-apocalyptic chud. Dan G. says cryogenically frozen brains. Chris D.G. says days old Twitter beef that just won't die. <laughs> Austin F. said good old-fashioned cockroaches. Warren L. says genuine Trump IOUs. What will the last burger be made of? Steve T says, all the very last gunky bits still stuck inside the meat hose. Ugh. Cassandra A says, how about the petit burger... Uh, uh, the petit burger... Wa- I'm trying to say bourgeoisie and burger in front of it. You that is that tough. Burger, burger bourgeoisie. Burger, burger, wa- burger, wa- burger ah, The bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie. Uh, that's why you're on the mic all the time, not me. <laughs> Benjamin C said, that E.T. video game for Atari. That is uh, clogging up landfills somewhere. They made a documentary about it. Jeff C says, Dust. Lynn F. says, albino sewer alligators. Mike M. says, vapes. <laughs> John M. says, sustainable bees. Kenneth W. says, looks amazing. And he's talking about a picture that I posted on this uh, on this post that just, I look, I googled gross burger. <laughs> right? uh, Aaron <laughs> that B. is a pretty gross looking burger. Aaron B. Yeah, it's not even, yeah. Aaron B. said, you real, oh, there's this guy still going on about the damn platforms and Zuckerberg. <laughs> maybe, we, maybe we should give this guy the prize. Uh, Aaron D said, Aaron D, not Aaron B, who's wrecking this thread. Aaron D said, polysorbate 60. Mark A says, dead coral. Ray C says, maggots. Kaylin R says, the last remaining animal, of course. Twin Ports, Democratic Socialists of America, wrote bacon. To which uh, Fabio L said, a cab. Fabio L then said, soylent green. Sarah S says, insects. Chandler H says, I want to say kangaroo, but we all know it'll be people. Louis D says, all of our ideals, hopes, and dreams. That's good. Dykefay T says virtue. Gina D says beef. Just pure old fresh ground beef because ain't no goddamn climate and food crisis going to tell a free man how to eat his goddamn burger in his own goddamn country. (laughs) Sebastian M said, and this was inevitable, but. Dennis H says unused rolling paper and all that leftover Patreon cash. (laughs) Uh, That was it. All right. So uh, my response to the question from hell, what will the last burger be made of and no saying rich people we already know you want to eat them. My guess is the last burger will be made of the second to last human still alive on planet Earth. That makes this winner, this week's winner, me. No, it doesn't. I liked Mark A. John Stossel's mustache. William C. saying memories and indignation. Andrea J.'s your own leg was fantastic. Pammy H.'s uh, snuffleupagus. Alexandra H. right off the bat saying poor people was fantastic. And the fact that nobody else said poor people is really, really great. But Stephen S. saying Bitcoin might be better. Alex, what do you think? Poor people or Bitcoin? Which one did you like more? I love poor people. That's very good. All right. So Alexandra H., you are this week's winner of the question from hell, you have won a book we just discussed, Joshua Speck's Red Meat Republic, a hoof-to-table history of how beef changed America. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we have introduced to you on this week's show, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt.
My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. 